Today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2023, and you're listening to the Ask a Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. Let's get right to it. Today, we talk about Matthew 24, 29, stars will fall from the heavens. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give off its light, and stars will fall from the heavens. How confusing. What a mystery. What does this mean? This is going to be the difference secularly. We may call this street smarts versus book smarts or common sense or, or something like that. But it bugs me because I think it's so easy. Like, I cannot be the enigma that just reads this. I'm like, oh, the sun will be darkened? Okay, no big deal. In some way, that means the sun will be darkened. So will the sun itself be darkened? Will something be between the earth and the sun to cause it to look dark? That's fine. Like, am I just too easygoing, like, too nonchalant about this? Like, it says darkened. That darkened means darkened. There's lots of ways the sun can be darkened. Um, or the moon will not give off its light. How pedantic is someone going to be and be like, well, the moon actually reflects. It doesn't give light. Okay, do you get what it's saying or not? The moon looks bright. It looks like a giant flashlight or bat signal in the sky. So, if it doesn't look like that, because it doesn't give off light or doesn't reflect light, fine. Like, why do people make such a big deal? And the answer is, you know, it's kind of rhetorical. It's because, well, either, maybe it's not. Either people really don't understand and they're like, but wait, how can the sun be darkened? The sun's a nuclear reaction and, you know, is it going to stop? It's like, do you really think that? Or do you just need to find a picky point with the Bible that you can stick to and be like, oh, well, Bible's wrong, God's false. I think that's it. But even if we just go super spiritual, the Bible talks about spiritual discernment and the wisdom of man. Spiritual discernment, which, I mean, if we compare it through all these examples we see day in and day out, I'm going to say it's a prima facie, on-its-face reading, Occam's razor, simplest answer is usually the right one, common sense. Just like, yeah, man, the Bible says this is going to happen. Don't get caught up on the mechanics that the Bible doesn't speak to. So whether the sun actually, like, snuffs out, even though it's supposed to turn into a red giant and, you know, engulf us all, if something unexpected happens and it just... Poof, it's out. A giant alien spaceship comes between the Earth and the sun to make it look like it's not producing light or it's dark. Who cares? The mechanics, how it happens, is not important, and the Bible rarely speaks to the mechanics. It just says, hey, this is going to happen. So whether or not, um, and, and I mean, I know the point is they're saying, well, if the sun itself doesn't darken, then the Bible is false. I'm like, yeah, but it, it says darken. It doesn't say the sun is going to darken. The sun is going to produce less light. So looking darkened is fine. Maybe we're in a giant nuclear dust cloud from, you know, destroying ourselves. So maybe the, the fallout is preventing us from seeing the sun clearly, so maybe it looks dark. I mean, all that has to happen for the Bible to be correct is the sun dark, the moon not giving light, and stars falling. I'm spending way too much time on this. You'll hear all about it in a minute. Um, but when they say stars, we get into such a contentious thing, and admittedly, I sound more nasally and annoying than usual because I have a cold that will not go away, or sinuses or whatever. Isn't sinuses just what people say when they don't really want to say how sick they are? In this case, I, it's a sinus infection. So sinuses, eh. But they're, they're like caught on, they're like, oh, well, the ancient people in Mesopotamia, so not exactly the you know people in Israel, but in the near enough area, they thought these were heavenly bodies and stars, and how can a star fall? Stars are suspended. They're not up nor down. They're a big, you know, ball of gas floating in space burning. It's like, bro, meteorite. Like, I think I was like a child, or like a, a early teen, the first time I ever heard this, and I never in my entire life thought one thing different than, oh, a meteorite, a shooting star. Shooting stars are not stars. <laughs> we get it. But I mean, following space rock, like, can you imagine? We still, we st I just did it. We just call, we still call meteorites and stuff, 
space rocks burning up in the Earth's atmosphere, shooting stars. Do we think they're stars? Is the Bible wrong because it's not talking about, you know, Alpha Centauri or whatever the nearest star is to us crashing into us or falling from the sky? No. If people then are like, oh, it's a shooting star or oh, it's a falling star, then fine. The Bible's speaking to them. Are we so dumb in 2023? Like, on one hand, when it benefits people, they want to say how, how you know, these goat farmers are so dumb and unintelligent and how smart we are. But now they want to flip it around and be like, oh, well, in 2023, I know I just said for my last point about how your God is all wrong. Um, was how smart and enlightened we are. But no, we're too dumb to understand that, you know, shooting star means meteorite. Come on. Anyways. Wow, way too much time on that. Middle knowledge. Does God know all possible stuff that could be? Or does God not know stuff? He doesn't know what's actually going to happen. He just knows everything that could happen. Uh, you should know where I stand by now. God knows everything that's going to happen, exactly how it happens. Um... Moral obligations of God. Why isn't God obligated to, you know, take care of his creations, just like we're obligated to take care of our children and stuff like that or whatever? Um, it should be. I mean, the point of parents don't, but we should have moral obligations. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that. And then Steph presents a study she found that is just incredibly flawed. I don't think anyone thought it was good, but just the audacity. Like, I mean, I guess the author thought it was good. So someone out there, and there's probably there's probably millions of people around the world like reading this and running with it, be like, oh, adultery is great. The study, oh, is so flawed. But this genius is trying to say like, adultery can be good for a marriage, and it's actually uh, you know really good um, for a healthy sexual appetite. If like one spouse doesn't want to have sex and the other one does, instead of fighting about it, just go hook up with strangers because that's cool. Um, regardless of the fact that, you know, all the people surveyed are from a cheating website, it's just for hookups, and it's all, like, middle-aged dudes <laughs> who aren't telling their wives. And they're like, it can actually make you feel, you know, guilt-free and without shame. Um, oh, yeah, and their, sp their spouse also doesn't know what they're doing. So, um, yeah, all that means is they haven't been caught yet. So wait until they get a letter in the mail being like, hey, are you my daddy? Or, uh, you know, they're like, oh, sorry, babe. I don't know what that is. Maybe you should go check that out at the clinic. Don't know where I would have got that creepy crawly. Um, anyway, so you'll hear. It's just a, a stupid study. And she brought it up to point out the absurdity. But, I mean, I'm sure people really believe this junk. So listen to it and let me know. Give us your feedback. Askachristian at gmail.com. Wow. Check out, in addition... The Ask a Christian book available on Amazon, going over a lot of topics and common questions about Christianity, why we believe what we believe it, and how to have a conversation to pe make people not think you're absolutely crazy or dumb or don't know what you're talking about. So it would behoove us to th Peter 3.15, First Peter, give an answer with gentleness and respect. So be ready to give an answer. Know what you're doing. Know what you're talking about. Be familiar with the subject matter. Um, why do you believe what you're doing? And then say it nicely. Um, also, check out the Ask a Christian store, grab a t-shirt, grab a coffee mug, support the podcast, or click the donate link, and, or click the donate link, and support us sharing the gospel with people on the internet. So, take care, share these links, see you all later. So, I was reading uh, uh, Matthew uh, 13, and 13.25, it talks about, you know, uh, some of the signs will be the stars falling from the sky and stuff like that. And I remember hearing... Um, I've, I've talked to believers about this a number of times and it usually gets hand waved away. So, Oh, they're talking about angels. But when I went to the Westcott interlinear and then also read the, the blue letter interpretation, it, it there, there's only, there's only one 
piece of commentary that I could find on it. And it was from, and it, it, I guess in my view, it wasn't from someone who looks like they had the capacity to be objective. Everything else that I've seen, that I've seen, and I, I talked to actually a couple of people just today about it, um, people who know this stuff and can, talk, can read the languages and stuff, talk about it as, as apocalyptic literature. And so I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on it because, so in Matthew thirteen twenty five it says, you know, stars will fall from the sky and that's not possible, right? Like the smallest, like the closest star to earth is Alpha Centauri and it's something like 35 times bigger than earth. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a um, conservative estimate. So it's not possible for that, for a star to fall from the sky. I'm curious what you guys think. Meteors. Matthew 13, yeah. 25. Did, did you go to verses 40 through 42? 20, Mark, 25. Mark. Mark 13. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said Matthew 13. Okay. Mark. I, I may have messed up. I meant Mark. Well, while they're getting out their tomes, I see that as like, you know, falling meteors or, com you know, comets like trails are burning up in the atmosphere, stuff like that. Yeah, like, for, I mean, you know, we have a whole thing for it. We have we call it falling stars. I mean, for, secular people. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't get that. We didn't, no one thinks an actual star is going to crash into us. I mean, it wouldn't crash into us. It would just kind of swallow no, us up. Well, th see, that's where I differ, right? Maybe you guys aren't as Calvinistic as me, but I follow doctor the doctrine of accommodationism as espoused by John Calvin. But you know, maybe you're missing the six point. You might need to put a tulipa in there somewhere. They, they actually did believe the earth was flat, so that would make perfect sense. There you go, Mike. Well, and Michael, you also said you looked it up. So, I mean, I'm sure, like, I mean, you know, I don't need to look it up. I believe you. But, I mean, you know, when it says, like, falling star, like, yeah, if you look it up, I mean, the word is going to mean star, like, because they're saying a falling star. If they were saying, you know, something else, then that's what the word literally mean. So the word may literally mean a star because they're saying falling star, just like we do. Like, well, what does star mean? Well, star means star. Um, but that's where Chris would say, you have to read a book. What is the author's intent? Um, anyways. So you have to Chris? understand <laughs> what stars were in the ancient conception. There was the, the council speak stars in the sky. That's interesting. So I, I got a powers. Sorry, um, I got a little bit of commentary right. back. So it says here: the, it says the moving stars for deities. That's it. Yeah. So thirteen twenty four, uh, like calls them heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon, right, um, and stuff like that. And then uh, there's other references. Like I'll have to look at this later because um, I'm just on my way to a meeting. But, Same uh, thing but, in Genesis one, by the way. But yeah, go ahead. Just set my alarm walk in my front door. Yeah. Hey, Brandon. Good morning. Did you say you're setting your alarm, Michael? Yep. Whoa, is everyone roboting? Or is that him really bad? Brandon is he really roboting bad. really bad for everyone? Okay, yeah. Sorry, Brandon. Uh, Michael, why do you have an alarm system in uh, Canada? Isn't everyone nice there, or do they just politely steal your stuff and say, oh, sorry about that. TV's, TV's got to go. Uh, it gives us a discount on our home insurance. 
Ah, okay. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this TV now, and um, and uh, okay, just take do it have, away. Do you have any money? Well, remember, we don't actually have banks in Canada, right? It's just all stuff in our mattress. Hey, y'all hear me now? Stuff from Moose. Uh, heard that. Yeah, I was going to say, could it be like, you know, the terms like stars falling from heaven, like Nate mentioned, like uh, falling stars, you know, that term of like sunrise. Could it be like we, even though we have like, you know, a lot of advanced sciences, we still use, I guess, archaic terms like that to this day. You think that could be maybe in the same genres? No. Because then you're saying, you're saying for you, it's phenomenological, right? And your your literary census literalis meaning is that it that it's just phenomenological, but it didn't mean that for the original authors, right? Because their view, right, is that they were actual divine beings up there in the sky. What? Are you talking about from the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were. Are you? Are you a jo- Christian? Super, uh, jo- because- yes, yes. Jo- Job, right? What are the What are the morning stars in Job, Brandon Nero? Well, I think that saying a- that sang for you know that sang with Elohim at creation. There, what 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 was that? I think when he's talking about morning stars, I think he's using a uh, reference for angelic beings. But it depends yeah, on the context. Like in uh, yeah. Genesis 35, uh, like the vision of uh, Joseph saw with his mom, his dad being the sun, his mom being the moon. I don't think anybody actually thought his dad was like daddy's son and his they, mom was the moon. They actually did. They actually did. I I want to recommend a reference. Wayne Horowitz's work, Cosmic Geography. Have you ever read that? Did did you know that the ancients actually wrote pictures about the way that they thought about the cosmos was actually structured? Did you know that? Well, I'm I'm, I'm talking, I'm not sure what ancients you're referring to. I'm talking about like in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about in the ancient Near East, the Bible. The Bible's an ancient Near Eastern book. Yeah. Are you on those two fires in heaven, person? Yes. Yes. I'm also I one of those know. divine accommodation folks. Yep. Yep. But who, are, who, are, who, are, who are the who are the stars that sang for glory, right? At creation in Job. So you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're, you're saying that they thought that the stars were like singing and stuff. No, what I'm telling you is they thought that those stars were divine beings. Brandon, he's saying that everywhere you see star in the Bible, it's in reference to angels or some type of divine celestial entity. That's what he's saying. No, 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 no. Five minutes ago. No, five minutes ago, I qualified that I said the moving stars of the deities, not the non-moving stars. 
we can see this in texts like Enuna, uh, Enuma and Leel, right? Astrological Babylonian records. See, and this is this is why, and not nothing gets you simple, but like uh, just personally, and I love nerdy reading. Don't get me wrong, but this is why I have big problems. Like when people like base their theology, you know, at least from a fundamentalist Christian viewpoint, on things that are not biblical. Like you know, we mm-hmm. start start quoting. Uh, Alan Siegel and all these other people and Second Temple period as if these people didn't have a lot of different things going on. It, to me, it, it kind of it, it lends a lot of problems theologically because it, great. It, it, it's, it's like Brandon. All, all these yes, sir. Brandon, then hang on, wait, Brandon. let me clarify. Let me clarify something great. real quick. Like, great, I, I think Brandon. Then- yeah, you're not going to interrupt me on my own stage. I want you guys to talk a while and I'll keep doing it, but chill. So I wanted to clarify, there's a difference in moving stars, like comets, or maybe if they thought planets moved from time to time and associated those with stars and like deities were in comets, um, versus like a shooting star, like something coming into the Earth's atmosphere. I don't necessarily know, and I'd be curious if anyone does, to know if they thought those, like one-off events, were associated with deities. I can't really imagine them thinking that, like they look up and see like a shooting star. See, I keep saying it like something falling into the atmosphere and burning up, I don't necessarily think they would say, that's a demon. That's a heavenly body. Well, also, Comments Nate, or something, for sure. Also, Nate, you got to also understand that they're going to have, um, in, in the ancient Near East, they're also going to, which is why I have, a, I have some fundamental uh, objections to that sort of rendering. Because in the ancient Near East, they understand that constellations don't always appear in the sky at the same time in the same season, right? So they, they understand that at certain seasons, you'll see certain clusters of dots in the sky. Let's not call them stars. Let's call them lights in the sky. You'll see certain clusters that form certain shapes. And then in other seasons, you'll see other clusters, right? And that's also in Job. Who can bind the Pleiades? Who can loose the belt of Orion? These are references to constellations, which they would have been able to observe, even in the ancient Near East, that those constellations do not always appear in the same place. So either the earth is moving and that doesn't track with early um, uh, 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 astrological uh, understandings, or they think the stars are moving throughout the heavens, right? But they didn't look at, let's say Orion's belt or certain clusters of stars as deities unilaterally. That's not something where we can say, oh, even even in the, the sense of moving, let's say that, oh, they all thought that the moving stars were deities and the ones that were stationary were not deities because there are clear examples of them conceptualizing moving stars as just celestial constellations and not personal divine entities, if that makes sense. There's plenty of Near Eastern evidence for them understanding constellations as just being lights in the earth that are lights in the sky that move that are not divine or angelic or any such thing. So, again, we do have to look very closely at the context because in Genesis chapter one talks about them as great lights. It doesn't even call them stars, but the moon moves. Right. We know the moon moves. And even in they would have understood the moon doesn't always look the same. Sometimes it's full. Sometimes it's half. Sometimes it's a crescent. Sometimes it's not there. They understood that these changes happened in the sky, which 
if they didn't understand orbits, then yeah, they would have thought, okay, the moon went somewhere else. It moved because we don't see it in the sky right now. Well, I'm just thinking about the whole verse, and it's Matthew 24, 29, uh, by the way, if someone was curious about whether it was Mark or Matthew, it's Matthew 24, 29. And just like parse your way through this, right? It just says what will happen. It doesn't say how it's going to happen. It doesn't give the mechanics. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. How do you want to read into that? It, it just states the sun will be darkened. Will the sun go out? People will say, no, no, the sun will be here for billions of years. It'll turn into a red dwarf and, you know, swallow the planet. Therefore, God's a lie or the Bible's wrong. Well, it doesn't say that. It just says the sun will be darkened. Maybe somehow that's like, I don't know, a, a solar or lunar eclipse or whatever it is that the world has never known. Maybe there's a giant tidal wave and it shakes the earth off its gravity a little bitty bit and completely blacks out the sun. And it's an extended time. Who knows? And it doesn't say how long it will be darkened. So the sun will be darkened in some way, shape, or form. Maybe a giant spaceship flies in between Earth and the sun and blocks its light. Just saying. And then the moon will not give its light. How? The moon doesn't have light to give. Therefore, the Bible's wrong. It's a contradiction. The moon doesn't have a light. It's a reflection of light. Don't be silly. It just says the moon will not give its light. So if the sun is darkened, does that mean the sun you know, doesn't hit the moon for it to reflect? It doesn't say. It just says the sun will be darkened. And by the way, it doesn't say completely opaque or eliminated. It just says darkened. So, I mean, maybe the sun will give a light. Maybe that's a nuclear cloud and we can barely see the sun. That would work for this. So if there's a cloud of dust that the sun is darkened, that doesn't change anything with the fission going on in the sun. That just means the sun is darkened and the moon doesn't give its light. Um, and then the stars will fall from the heavens. Like, you know, a star can't fall. It's kind of stuck in space. So... I see that as, you know, meteorites are falling, you know, shooting stars or something like that. So you can read into this a thousand different ways. But what it actually says is sun darkened, moon not give its light, and stars fall. So I think we're making much ado about nothing, of which I have made much ado about. You're welcome, Nate. No, I was, I was, really, <laughs> I, I, I was really just curious as to people's interpretations, right? Um, you know, because there, there are many, right? who look at, you know, who take the Bible literally, right? There, there are literalists, and I've spoken to some of those, and I've spoken to, you know, people who just, you know, interpret the hell out of things, and I was just curious as to what people thought it was. It, it Because a plain reading of the text, right, as many will advocate for, a plain reading of the text, uh, of the text this is very problematic. And so I just wanted to hear people's interpretations. Yep, that's mine. I think shooting stars. Not comets that they thought were demons or something like that. I think it's shooting stars. <laughs> yeah, John, we covered shooting stars in our stores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris. You were saying, Chris. Based on his PTR, I think he's in a meat coma. <laughs> His blood is like sludge. So what did you think it was, Michael? I mean, just a straight, uh, you know, straight reading, even though it says, you know, the stars will fall. Were you instantly like, yeah, that's clearly a meteorite or like what was the first plausible thought that came to your head? So so when I was a so. When I was a believer, I don't think I'd ever read this part of the Bible. Um, I don't think I first read this part of the Bible. I don't think I really read the entirety of the Bible until I started losing my faith. 
Um, so when I first read this, my first thought was, well, that's a problem. Um, and then as I tried to kind of, yeah, excuses sounds less charitable than I mean it to offer alternative explanations. Um, yeah, I, I suppose meteors, right? I mean, we call them shooting, shooting stars, you know, and I think someone else said that it might've been Lou who said that, you know, kind of colloquially, you know, call them shooting stars, even though we know they're just hunks of rock, right? There's not a star, right? Stars are like, you know, there, there's no star that could fall from the sky, right? Cause stars aren't up, um, to fall down. So anyway, that, that was my interpretation, but yeah, I, I guess I thought as a, as an explanation, it may have been meteorites or something like that. Um, it still seems to me problematic given that, you know, given what the Bible is supposed to be and who it's supposed to be, uh, inspired by you, you like in, in my mind, I think, you know, God could have picked better words, right? Cause he knows that in 2023, you know, the, you know, the end of May heading into pride month, Michael's going to be talking about this on a stage and, uh, you know, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should address this better. Well, maybe, but if he would have used better words then instead of meteorite, maybe they would have prematurely, like, you know, maybe they would have foregone the cross and stoned him for being like, you know, a crazy possessed person. They're like, what are you talking about? Rocks are in heaven. Rocks are here. Watch. Ah, then they stoned him with rocks. I mean, watch. Ah. I mean, maybe, um, you know, he, he would have hoped better of us in 2023. Or we read with this, you know, spiritual discernment, uh, you know, from God. Or just, you know, common sense reading, <laughs> not mutually exclusive. That's like, yeah, bro, meteor. So like then if it was like, yeah, stars are falling from the heavens. Look up at that. Every now and then you can see one shoot across the sky. That's a star falling from heaven. He's like, yeah, these people are dumb. Yeah, the stars, those stars, they're going to fall. Um, yeah, people in 2023 are going to get it. And if they don't get it, that's not keeping them from me. Uh, there's plenty of other reasons keeping them from me besides a meteor slash star. I don't know. I Sounds think it's also... I think it's also important to note, Nate, that even in the even in the uh, the activity of divine inspiration for scriptures, he's not circumventing. You know, God is inspiring the scripture, but he's not circumventing the human mind in terms of the 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 language that they know, the knowledge that they know. Um, you know, when they're writing these things down. So again, to to Chris's infamous. Uh, 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 restatements and statements about authorial intent, it's like, okay, well, what did they mean when they say star, right? So did the ancient Near Eastern person, average ancient Near Eastern person, did they understand a star to be some big ball of gas that's fixed in the sky with a gravitational pull that's however many hundreds of times or thousands of times larger than the earth? Or did they understand stars that they saw twinkling in the sky just to simply be something in the sky? Something that's in the sky. It's pretty easily settled, right? One second, Sipper. I just wanted to point out Jamesy in the comments. Excellent point, Jamesy. There is no way to know that, but I have never thought about that before. Like, what is it called? Like, the big, um, the, the two ways the universe dies, we think. Um the one where, where the, yeah, like it, it rapidly expands and, you know, basically everything like super like shoots out. I mean, it could be that, right? I mean, that's kind of like warp speed, right? Like when uh, in Star Wars, when they go into hyperspace and all the stars like look blurred and look like they're streaking across the screen because it's moving so fast. Like maybe, uh, I don't know. That's what ends everything. Jesus is like, all right, Earth's ending, time to come back. The universe is like super expanding. That's a 
interesting point, James. There's no way to know if that's it, but I mean, you know, why not? Yeah, Semper, what's up? Yeah, so rather than speculation, I actually appeal to what is there rather than what isn't there, right? Wayne Horowitz's Cosmic Geography book outlines the way that people thought about the ancient world, right, in Mesopotamia. It, it actually makes several allusions to the scriptures in that book. It, I, I also appeal to Enuma and Enlil, which are Babylonian astrological texts, where they refer to the sky, to, to the lights in the sky as deities. I, the only the only speculation go, going on here. Right, is to deny the actual evidence by scholarship on this. Well, you I know, ask you. And that's where well, we differ. Well, you say maybe it could be. Well, maybe it could be. Great. Where's your source? Citation, please. Right. I'm asking in your source, your citation, does I, it I gave you two. Oh, oh so what am I going to ask? Okay, I'll ask I gave you two then. sources. You gave me nothing. My patience is, wow, Michael, I, you may see me lose it faster than I do with, like, you know, people screaming at me and saying, you know, like, whatever. Simper, I'm asking you a question. I don't know the answer in the two sources you keep saying you gave me. Here is the question. Does that address every single thing in the sky? I get it. Lights in the sky. Does that address what we now understand to be shooting stars, like falling rocks from space? Is that addressed in your sources, or does it not cover that subject? No, it covers a distinction between moving lights, flat skies, right, rounded horizons, and the way that people thought about territories and how that connects to sacral, uh, sacred views in the ancient Near East with different cultures. That's what Wayne Horowitz's book, Mesopotamian Cosmic Geography, gives you. And these and what you do find is there are archaeological depictions of the way that they thought about the universe, right? Okay. I, what what you've given me is just speculation. But what well, what I'm giving you is evidence against basically your non-evidence, right? The absence of evidence is not evidence; it's absence. What I'm saying is because well, great. Be, because look, this does not matter. I don't know why you're stuck on this. What you say is fine. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with I'm, what you're saying. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not, your, I'm not stuck on it. Okay. So since your source doesn't address what we're talking about, I'm not saying this is definitely it. I'm saying it could be. We'll never know. The Bible is silent about it. Both of your sources are silent about it. So if they no. understood per your sources. My sources. If, my no, sources you are just said. You just, you literally just said your sources cover, you know, moving bodies no. in the heavens and stuff like that. You weren't you said listening. It was, does it address meteorites? Does it address falling rocks from space? And you said no. It, it does? Um, yeah, look, look at, um, if you're asking me specifically, yeah, wait, hold on. Let me come through the pages because I think it does talk about meteorites. That The point remains that the only way it makes sense is if the, the Earth is a flat Earth. That's why it's written that way. Nate, this may make me a terrible person because I dropped this bomb and now I have to go. Uh, so, so curse me if you will. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I was just looking for, <laughs> Hey, you name this channel. 
right? As a Christian, we've got answers. I was looking for answers, man. No, I no, don't feel bad. bad. I, I, you shouldn't feel bad. I, I, I think it's fine. Like, I, I guess we're talking past each other. I, maybe we're not now. Maybe we've buttoned it up. But, yeah, so my answer remains. Um, it, it could be, you know, deities of the heavens that they're talking about. Um, it could be a common yeah, ad- thing. Maybe evidence for that? Post. Source? Which scholar has that? Right. Cheers, guys. Both of yours. The ones you just said that talks about they thought the heavenly no. bodies were deities. <laughs> no, my mine said that they are deities. Yours, you're saying maybe they aren't considering them as deities. And then I made a Except distinction for, okay, between moving we, and non-moving stars. We can Semper, at this point, we're done. I literally made your point, not my point. I didn't talk about falling stars. I was going to say that, but you cut me off. I made your point. I said, maybe it's deities in the skies. Maybe it's comets moving closer is why they thought, you know, it's a deity moving in the sky. I was making your point. And then you say, what's your evidence? What's your source? The sources you gave. I'm making your point. I'm making your argument. Am I being punked right now? Is someone about to, like, come in with, like, banners and, like, signs and horns? All right. Anyway, um, Marquise, what's up, man? Hey, final point of clarification, uh, just to throw in there. So I understand the relevance of using ancient Near Eastern texts to establish what the cultural uh, uh, and, and shared thought or common thought environment was, you know, in the... Uh, in the biblical narrative, because they're in the ancient Near East, right? I've I've taken those classes. I've read a lot of those books, uh, which will talk about the Old Testament in the ancient Near Eastern thought, right? Or the Word of God in ancient Near Eastern thought, and it providing context for why they thought certain things. But what you also have to understand is that just because you're establishing something generally in Mesopotamia, or just because you're establishing something as generally speaking the common shared idea in the ancient Near East, it doesn't automatically dictate that the Bible should is using that thought, that common shared quote unquote colloquial thought to inform its uh, a rendering of whatever divine message God inspired the authors to write. Why? Because there are also a great many ideas and concepts that Israel specifically held over and against the rest of their environment around them like what to eat, like what to drink, like how they did certain things. You're going to find specific things in the Old Testament that are unique to the Israelites that other places around them weren't doing, that the Persians weren't doing, the Babylonians weren't doing, the Egyptians weren't doing, right? Even some of their closer uh, cousins, right, of the descendants of Ishmael weren't doing. The Moabites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Amorites, those people weren't doing that Israel was specifically doing. That is a result of the, uh, again, that a divinely inspired word that they received then from Moses, right? Or from the prophets, et cetera, et cetera. And so it gives, uh, this is what I think Brandon's point was, that it might give, you know, as an extra biblical source, it gives us some context maybe some ideas about how they might have seen certain things. But our fundamental source about what the Israelites are thinking contextually has to be Scripture because Scripture necessarily differentiates the Israelites from all the other uh, 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 nations around them in uh, in specificity to the way they think and the way they conceptualize the universe, the way they conceptualize the world. 
right? So we can look at, again, we can look at these other different things um, to, to get maybe some basic understandings about certain things, but we also have to, we don't use that to inform our understanding of scripture. We should be qualifying whether or not that fits into the Christian worldview or the Israelite uh, 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 environment or conceptualization based on what the scripture says about what they think. And what you'll see is in scripture, they're referring to things in the sky as inanimate objects that are just there for the glory of God. And they're referring to, I'm, I'm loosely defining this, things in the sky as, you know, things that sing before the throne of God, like the morning stars sing with the, the sons of God, et cetera, et cetera, like in Job or in Revelation. And, and Satan drew a third of the stars of heaven with him. And, you know, so there's a reference to angelic beings there. But then there's also the two great lights in Genesis 1 and the greater light governed the day and the lesser light governed the night. So there are different conceptualizations of these these things in the heavens. And it's not necessarily a one size fits all thing. And that's based on the biblical context. And we can't take something from outside the Bible to then say, oh, yeah, generally speaking, it means these different things without qualifying that based on scripture as the primary authority, right? I, we're, so yeah, I'll land. I'm with you, Marquise. And the greatest question I've heard today is from Carlton. Why the contention on such a tertiary issue? I completely agree. And I mean, for myself, my frustration, because, you know, I have no dog in this fight, right? What the Bible says, the Bible says. So you can interpret that different ways. So I, I don't really care beyond what the Bible says. Um, my, my frustration <laughs> was I literally said what the guy has been saying as a possible thing. He interrupts me to ask for evidence. I'm like, bro, I just made your point. My evidence is your evidence. So my frustration was, for whatever reason, the guy was like so adamant about his point that he wasn't even listening to anyone else talk because I said exactly what he was saying. And he's like, where's your evidence? I'm like, well, your evidence. I said what you were saying. Anyway, um, so... That's my problem. All you other devils can explain yourselves. Uh, but Daniel, welcome. We'll get right to you. But G had a question uh, in the queue first. Uh, G, what's up? Yeah, thanks so much, bro. So my question is this. I'm a father of two kids. And when I think about them, there's absolutely nothing that I can think of that they can do that would make me to forsake my one children. Absolutely nothing. You can think like in the, the, the worst sin ever. If God sees us as his one children, and if we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit, is there any sin or anything that can make us to not be saved anymore? If your answer is, no, of course not. Come on, he's your God, like you love your children. God's loved us. There's absolutely nothing that you can do because of God's grace, because God's love. If that's the case, uh, how do you justify these people that they say that yes you can lose your salvation because you can like stop the process or you can uh you know forget about god or how do you how can you conciliate this because even if my children they for, forget about me they are still my children right so how, how do you see this like losing your well, it would hinge on whether or not they truly are their children. And I think, you know, there's kind of some like going back and forth that there's like some internal inconsistency with that position that you could try to point out. Maybe they'll see it. Maybe they won't. Um, but it all hinges on, are you truly God's kid? So, you know, like they may cite the verse, um, which, you know, I was on the fence about this. I'm 
I'm still on the fence, but I mean, you know, it's more, it's more consistent to be like, well, no, if you are saved, then you are saved. Well, when are you saved? And I believe, you know, Romans 10, 9 and 10, um, you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, the Lord, and believe in your heart, he raised from the dead, you will be saved. Um, so some would say, well, you will be, meaning at the end, Paul says, run this race before you. But we're also told, like, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So it, it all, it's all predicated, like, you know, I don't want to say they're completely dumb or, you know, call them, you know, like bad words or something. Um, because I, I think it's reasonable. Like, I think it's internally inconsistent. And there's some problems. And maybe you can slow walk them through. But I think it's still on its face reasonable to question and be like, well, are you saved now? Because even they would say, like all the ones I've spoken with would say, well, yeah, once you're truly saved, then, then you are saved. And there's, there's no, well, maybe they all wouldn't say that. But a, a lot of them would say, well, yeah, once you're, once you're in, you're in. But when are you in? It, when you take the last breath in this life, if you've ran a good and faithful race and all that stuff, if you've like held to your guns and if, if yes, well then you're saved and you can never be unsaved. But you know, like the once saved, always saved people would say, well, once you profess and believe and you're a disciple of Christ, you repent and believe the gospel, you're saved right then. So you can never lose your salvation, meaning you're basically going to toe the line for Christ. If you become a moral monster and do everything against Christ, well, they're not going to say you've lost your salvation. They'd say, well, actually, that was a false conversion. You were never really saved. Because if you were saved, you never would have done those things. Versus the other people would say, no, no, you were saved, but now you're not saved because you've done those things. You need to repent and, uh, you know, be forgiven or resaved. So that's the best I can do without any of those people to better no, yeah. explain their own position. Thank you so much for that. And I totally agree with you. It does make sense. Uh it wouldn't be, yeah, of course, if you have done loads of different bad stuff, of course, you would not, like, save in the first place. Like, that's what I believe personally. But what, if I could just extend the question, uh, so what do you say that for those that they they feel like that they are saved, they have, like, the Holy Spirit, but what about some stuff about, like, sin? So how do you conciliate sin? Because I know that we are always going to be sinners, we and for sure, but how do you see that? the repentance life towards salvation because some some is going to say no, no no you have to be fully repented of all your ongoing sins to be saved otherwise you're not saved that's a good question would anyone else like to speak wonderful i mean there would only be very few people talking about like sinless perfection like you never sin and we also wouldn't call those people christians because um, we're, we're going to deal with sins, whether, you know, infrequently, very, very small sins, or, uh, you know, if it's like egregious and habitual, then, you know, problems, perhaps not even a Christian, like we talked about. But, you know, the, the most spirit-filled Christian you know is still going to deal with temptation, and they're occasionally going to slip up. Um, and for that, it's like, well, if I say, if I tell a lie and I, quote, repent, meaning I turn away from lying, does that mean I will never lie again? Probably not. If you said yes, that would probably be a lie right there. Um, just, you know, maybe there's someone that did that. But yeah, I think it's like living a life of repentance, like knowing that you're not immune from sin. You will deal with sin. You will deal with temptation, but you're not habitual. You're not making a habit of it. When you do, you know, you move on, uh, trying not to repeat the same thing, you know, renew your mind. Um, that's my answer. Yeah, good one. No, yeah, do wrong road. see who is down there in the crowd hey bubs good morning harlequin what's up anyone else what's up you got anything on your mind today 
Uh, no, I just finished beating up. Oh, Daniel, I forgot about Daniel. <laughs> Sorry, we forgot about you, Daniel. What's up? Did you have anything to say? Oh, yeah, how's it going? Yeah, I just had a question um, pertaining to what, uh, what it's been described as, quote, middle knowledge. And I was wondering, as far uh-huh. as I can tell, middle knowledge seems to be this um, an additional set of knowledge that God has that some people say he doesn't have. Some people say he does. So the idea is that middle knowledge is God knows what a creature would do under some, under any circumstance. And I was wondering if anyone can speak to middle knowledge or and why it's um, if it's important at all. That's going to be even though Bubby un- even though Bubby unmuted. <laughs> I like to say is basically you know for people that don't want to be like yeah God knows everything and he didn't stop evil so ah. Like, I, I feel like whether they admit it or not is to kind of circumvent that. Like, well, he didn't know exactly the evil is going to be committed. He knows everything that could happen, all the possibilities, the good, the indifferent, it, and the it's evil. It's just cope it, for the problem of evil. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, let's pull Steph up here from somewhere. Maybe she'll uh, say it better. I think she <laughs> thinks that unless we've converted her. Oh, she's there. Oh, my gosh. I actually didn't even see her there. Yeah. But, um, so so I understand basically God knows all possible possibilities that could happen. But I believe when the Bible says God knows all things, that, that means the actual thing that's going to happen. Um, Bubs, take a stab at Steph real fast, and then we'll see what yeah. she has to say. So just, what the, I just got here? So, so just, just real quick. Just, just real quick. This may be one of like the only times I will ever agree with John Lee. He's right in the comments. Counterfactuals do not exist. Therefore, middle knowledge is not biblical. Good job, John. <laughs> All right, Steph. What's up? I actually didn't even <laughs> see you. I didn't even know you were. Oh. We got a bulk. Let's go. Okay, let's, oh. Wait, let's I'm back. Steph before oh, she's back. Saved by the oh. bell. Hold on. <laughs> You gotta ca- okay. Wait a minute. Catch me up. We're talking about middle knowledge. Being what? Daniel had a question you, on middle you, knowledge. What was the I think you heard as much question? as we did. Like, as if you were here in the last two minutes, you heard everything we did. So, Daniel, you want to restate your uh, question? Sure. I've heard a lot of talk about um, this notion of middle knowledge, and I was wondering. Typically, it's understood that God knows like all true things. Like, so everything is true. God will know that. But it seems like there are these other sets of facts which don't happen like god knows what certain creatures like would do so god has a knowledge of information about what creatures would do and and so they can only do um that which is in the actual world the one that god creates so there is the idea is he has knowledge of what creatures would do in some other world and I was wondering, is that what middle knowledge is? Is middle knowledge important? And what does it rest on? What 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 does it matter? Yeah, okay. Um, so in talking to Jack, actually, I had to really push myself and do a bunch of research on this. So my understanding is that there's actually a difference between the idea of middle knowledge in philosophy and in theology. So like one of the things that I had heard from the more philosophy minded atheists was that, let me see if I can get this right. Cause it's been a while. They said that it's the idea that God knows everything that would happen. 
But in theology, it's that God knows everything that would or could happen. So I think sometimes the conversation gets a little muddled because there's a nuance there that can take you in two different directions. Um, is it important? It, to me, so I hold to middle knowledge because it's the answer that makes the most sense to me. Um, and it's it. my understanding is, as I said it, it's, it's that God knows everything that will happen, but he also knows everything that could have possibly happened. The bottom line is that he's surprised by nothing. Um, so I think this is important just because it helps us to shut up. Bub. I'm going to move Bubby down. You stop it with that gift. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that the idea it's important because in all, it's only important if you are interested in trying to understand how the mind of God works, but what every human being would need to concede is that it's pretty impossible to understand. Like the Bible reveals to us what we're supposed to know about how the mind of God works and questions like this to me. Uh, reveal that it's actually might be impossible or not that important to understand this level of how the mind of God works. Uh, but for a human understanding, the idea that God knows everything that would or could happen and will happen is the most comprehensive idea of omniscience to me. Oh, and then you had one more. Um, other, oh, so I got into this with um, with Jesse once about alternate realities. And again, I think that that goes into the more philosophical, like once you say, oh, well, in an alternate reality, uh, God would have known that something did this. It, it, you know, I, I don't think the middle knowledge covers that. The end. Yeah, I like that because it doesn't seem like it's limiting God's omniscience. It's defining it in a different way, and it actually includes more information. So yes. God seems to, to know more in this in this instance about things that could happen or, or sorry, yeah, could happen or would happen uh, as opposed to what only what will happen. Well, exactly. So, That's why it makes the most sense to me, because well, yeah. it's the most thorough. Yeah. See, he got well, now, now, hang on. So if we're saying if the the Steph, well, hang on, put the Steph crowd. Uh, hang on, put them to the side. So on the God knows exactly what will happen crowd, we're not saying God doesn't also know everything that could possibly conceivably happen. We're, we're saying like, I mean, I would say, yeah, sure. What Steph says, plus he knows exactly what will happen. Um, so it's, it's not just because we're saying, well, God knows exactly what will happen means he has like a, a mind blank and doesn't, you know, doesn't know, oh, they could have done evil or, oh, they could have done it a different way. Like, I, I think, yeah, sure. Throw that in there too. But that's like a lesser point than God knows actually the thing that will happen. So right. I would say everything Steph said, plus he knows exactly the, the specific outcome. Look how well-timed Chris and Bubby are over here. All right. So listen, the, <laughs> the, 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 the middle knowledge thing, though, solves a problem of God being at a point in time. So if God is with you at a point in time and you're anticipating an event, right? And again, this is us. We have to concede that we may not have the full understanding of how this works, which I will concede. concede. This is, none of these are hills I'll die. No, Bob, wait. Okay. The, the problem middle knowledge solves is that if God is with us in a point of time and we're anticipating an event, okay, even if it's something small, like, okay, I'm about to cross the street. I look left and then I look right and then I forget to look left again. Or in another instance, I do look left again, right? God knows every possible 
scenario that would come from those two small decisions down to how many times I'm going to blink and how many extra hairs I may shed or who I may run into and change their life. It's an inconceivable amount of information. So I think mental knowledge is more pointing to like, if God is with us at a point in time, how does he understand, you know, or not understand, but how does he function with us in our lives? Yeah, that's, that's what I, wait, that's wait, Steph, what the question I had, Steph. That's what... Well, Steph, to clarify, you're saying God still, he knows all that stuff, but he doesn't know the specific outcome. Is that correct? I'm saying that he knows every outcome. He's surprised by nothing. It's a, it's an incomprehensible well, well, amount well, of knowledge that God would have. Okay. I mean, I would say sure that too, but you know, he also knows the specific outcome or you're saying all these outcomes are specific, but one will actually be realized. Bobby, can I move Bobby? He's got cusses going on. All right. So the idea here is that You've got the power. So there are certainly occasions where, and this is where I'm really going to depart from from reformed teaching, right? We see many occasions in the Bible where... (sighs) We see many occasions in the Bible where God chooses to know, you know, where God interacts, knows what's going to happen, directs. There's lots and lots and lots of this. In fact, the vast majority of the time, that's the way he's functioning. There are other times where God is persuaded or changes his mind or reacts to something that humans have done. Therefore, in order for that to make logical sense, it must be that God is to some amount along on the ride with us by his own choice. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely... See, that's what I was getting at. But the analogy I would like to draw is like... it's Maybe this is a bit primitive, but you're on the... Let's say a child is on the playground, and one child says, listen, my dad is smarter than your dad. and um, the, and the kid says, listen, my dad knows all the factuals and counterfactuals. And then he's like, your dad only knows the facts, the facts. And then the kid whose dad only knows the facts is like, just, he's just devastated. He's devastated because I mean, there's, that's a, just a hard defeater for his dad being smarter because your, your God knows more than their God. And I don't see what would limit God's knowledge of counterfactuals of what creatures would do. I don't see what, what, what would bar God from knowing that. Because counterfactuals don't exist in Christianity. Well, that's, that's debate. I mean, there are some scriptures we could look at, but I would just say that, yeah, it's a, it's a simple fact of saying, my God knows more than your God. Um, Have a nice day. Yeah, because and it's embarrassing. Because because what, what Steph says just sounds like omniscience with extra steps and then introducing a non-biblical concept that is counterfactuals. Okay. Yeah, that's, it's a little that's too kind of, early well, for me well, to, to that, be like. Is okay. that middle knowledge has to exist outside of God for it to be middle knowledge. Bing, bing, therefore, bing. you've got another entity outside of God that is eternal. Now you've got two gods. Bing, bing, bing. What? I, okay, it's it, like honestly. All right, I'm doing other things. I want to have this argument, but that okay. Chris, can you explain that? It's a conversation. We to... don't argue here. <laughs> so Please, es- es- essentially, what he's saying I'm kidding, is we do. You there is some the middle <laughs> knowledge is something that is external to God. If it is external okay. to God and Wait, it is eternal, there. then there. it makes stop it a second. There. Hold on, hold on. It's God's How knowledge. Is middle knowledge. knowledge external? Oh, sorry, Stan. How is mi- no? That's okay. So knowledge is a word that we're using to describe some function God has. Okay. We're not describing something outside of God. So can you explain to me how you arrived at middle knowledge creates a second God? Because there's a leap there. I didn't follow you on. 
middle knowledge is contingent on creation, making God contingent on creation. Wow. Making it external That's not to- an explanation. What do you mean? Making it external to God. If it's not inside, if it's not internal to God, because for his own knowledge, he does not. He is not dependent on creation. Okay. He's not dependent on anything external for that. So there's for middle the knowledge. He completely made. is reliant. On you're it. you're seeing knowledge as a tangible item. You're you're looking at knowledge like it's um like it's an object. And I'm describing knowledge as a ver- as a function. How God knows. So if you turn it, like, do you see? You're making a leap there that someone who holds to middle knowledge wouldn't make. If it's how God knows, but the reason how God knows is because of his creation, then there's a problem there. Well, we're not, Because it makes God contingent on his creation. Not necessarily, because we're not limiting the knowledge that God, like we're not ni- limiting what God knows to creation. Th- this is an incomprehensible amount of information that none of us could even wrap our heads around. Well, then that's what I'm saying. It's important that you concede in the beginning of this conversation that there's no way of understanding even the list of things that God knows. But that's just, it's not that's just an appeal to ignorance. What do you, no, 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 Bobby, don't, don't, okay. You can't be taking cheap shots like that just to score points. The, the understanding that God has that we are trying to wrap our heads around is not limited to creation. What's your response? Not limited to creation and contingent on creation are not mutually exclusive. How? In the sense that, for example, if I were to I'm find a way to try to put an analogy together to describe what I'm saying, but if we are, for example, I can eat at every single food chain that there is, right? I can eat at McDonald's, I can eat at Wendy's, and I can eat at Burger King, right? But for me to have some type of understanding of the three of those, some for some reason... I must need McDonald's before any of that. I can. I am not limited to eating just McDonald's, but it's contingent on McDonald's to exist for me to be able to know what that tastes like. Okay, so by that logic, then you're saying that in order for God to function in any way, there could, there should be nothing. Like by your by your understanding, then God would only fully be free to if there was nothing to respond to, and then God responded. That will would fulfill. But your God does not respond. That's my issue. God does not respond. Okay, if there was nothing, and then God behaved, that would fulfill your understanding. So it doesn't. I'm not buying that. Behaved, indi- behaved indicates a change somewhere, and there's not happening there. So I mean, if we're going to go off some type of reaction or behavior, well. That's not compatible with God. Why? Because he's unchanging. There is no reaction or response if he's actualized everything already. Okay, but in your understanding, then anything God does would have to be... Like, you're saying that in order for God to not be contingent, like the way you're describing contingent... Because God is pure. In order, for, in order for God to not be contingent, then there would have to be absolutely nothing for God to interact with. That's Otherwise, not the case. Otherwise, he's contingent. No, 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 no. What... Look, what we're saying is God does not instantiate his will based on libertarian agency. He cannot, because that would make him mutable. It would make him changing based on libertarian choices that are being made by libertarian agents outside of his control. So I force, I I understand this. I understand that this is where you're coming from. And that's why I'm going to return to my topic thesis, which is like, now you're, 
you're stuck on the idea of libertarian free will, but we're not talking about free will at all. We're talking about what God understands. So if I, okay, so you are, you're sticking on the idea that I said, maybe I look left, maybe I look right, maybe I look left again. And then billions of variables sprout out from that one decision while I'm crossing the street. You are really stuck on the looking left or looking right being free will. And in order for this problem to be solved for you, God has to dictate or fully know only which way I will look. And I'm saying that's irrelevant to God's understanding. Because I, if God's plan to, is perfect, the, he, wait, one second. If, if, he, if his God's plan is perfect and he only actualizes one reality, it doesn't make sense for there to be counterfactuals or else you have a God with an imperfect plan. Uh, go ahead, Nate. I I could keep yeah. going. Yeah, it's on. It's on the. It's on the billions. Uh, it's on the. It, not not that you know the one thing. It's like the, the billions of other possibilities. Well, if the, they're they're not just possibilities. Like if they could exist, they would exist, and God would know it. But if they don't, if they can't exist, they won't exist. And God, not that He wouldn't know it, but it wouldn't exist for Him to know because if He could know a possibility, He would know it, and it would have to like somehow Correct. exist. This is like a weird quantum leap type thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to depart from the reformed idea that like that in order for I'm God to be. No, I'm not. I know you're not. But you're yeah. also kind of standing in the middle of it, as usual. Uh, like you're you're always the yeah. guy trying to like settle everybody down. Um, what I'm saying is that it's I'm not going working, to. Is it? <laughs> it is. You're doing great. Um, I, I'm going to have an issue with the idea that like God is only omniscient if we understand how he understands. Like at the end of the day, that's going to I'm going to have a problem. That's not what we're saying. That's exactly what you're saying. You're saying that God must fully understand everything that will come to be and also cause it in order for omniscience to be an attribute but of God. Do you understand what omniscience and omnipotence oh means yes. in classical theism? Yes, I do. Like, I, I, I mean, okay, so how did Aquinas describe... No, I'm not the doing the... I love you, Chris. I'm not doing the the quiz, right? Because it's irrelevant, Okay. God has given us understanding and God has, uh, we think in a, uh, in a way that God thinks, but we are so severely limited that we can't understand this. So if you are going to stand on the hill of God can't be omniscient unless I fully understand how he understands, you're going to fail. No, that's, that's not what we're saying at all. What we're, that's what you keep saying we're saying. It's not what we're saying. We're saying that we can't understand or comprehend the mind of God. That, that's, Bubby, would you agree with that? Uh, I wouldn't agree with what Steph's saying, no. No, no, not what, what I just said. Uh, what what I you just said, not yes, understand the saying, mind no. of God. Yeah. So, so that's what we're saying, which I think you're saying the same thing. The problem here is that, like, logically, again, Molina was positing a knowledge outside, external to God. Okay? Right. And so... That becomes a seriously bad logical problem. I'm going it's, to come back to this again. I'm not educated on Molina. I don't understand. So whenever I get into conversations with people, here. we're talking about one thing, and then it becomes a conversation about what Molina wrote or what you know Aquinas said. I like the the point is I'm read enough on that stuff to understand the basic theories. But if you're going to have a conversation with me about Molina's third treatise uh, in the whatever, like I. I'm not going to be able to have that conversation, but also it's irrelevant. What Molina said is irrelevant right now. 
I mean, he's the one who invented middle knowledge. Right. So and I'm... so you're stuck there. That's what I'm pointing out to you. I had the same conversation with uh, Tyler the other day. Like you get stuck in this, in this place of like, well, this is where the conversation has already gone. And this is the rut I'm in. Right. Like, get, right. I don't we're care. Just trying to fast, we're just trying to fast forward you through working through 400 years of, of theology to get to the end where William Lane Craig has failed in terms of Molinism. Right. So the, okay. The thing, so so the Molinism that, is not relevant to this conversation. We're talking about how God might understand things. So you're saying I'm going to fast track you, but what you end up doing is walking me into a corner that I'm not holding to. Right. But the reason you can't hold to the corner is because the rest of the conversation has been skipped. And so when we go back to Molina, what we're saying to you is, if you don't want to go back, if you don't want to get fast tracked into the corner that, that Lane Craig is in and that the other middle knowledge folks are in, fine. What you have to do is you have to then go back and read all of the conversations that have gone on for 400 years. I don't think so. It, so this, this is where the academic runs into problems. And I'm going to give the same analogy that I gave the other day to Tyler. You have two people standing at the Met looking at a painting, right? You're both looking at a Caravaggio. I have extensive information on Caravaggio, who he was, where he lived, why he painted, what he painted, what his life looked like, the actual physical technique that he used, the chemical composition of the paint. I know everything that a human being could possibly understand about this painting. And there's an old man standing next to me and he says, what a beautiful painting. We both have access to a truth and the man is like, he is getting something that I have lost. Okay, the man seeing that painting with fresh eyes for the first time has access to something that I have lost through $90,000 and years of academic education on the topic. So if I were to engage this man in a conversation about why Clement Greenberg thought that Caravaggio was irrelevant and a waste of time, he would just stare at me and be like, but it's a beautiful painting. And he would be right. That's the conversation we're having. Yeah, I understand. But for the for the analogy to hold correctly, the old man's response is not this is a beautiful painting. The conversation we're having right now is the old man going, there's nothing but a blank wall in front of me. Convince me otherwise. That's the conversation, not it's a beautiful painting. He's literally saying the painting doesn't exist. Uh, That's no. the analogy. Okay, my mother-in-law just got here. I'm going to let you guys take it. <laughs> Did you say no? What, um, what are you disagreeing about? I was trying to listen in. What's the major disagreement about God's omniscience that was going on between Steph and Middle God? knowledge versus non-middle knowledge. The reform position versus oh. people's evangelical position. So the middle, right, I see. So yeah, the reform so we, we as like a, middle knowledge. I just take the view that middle knowledge is just a cope for the problem of evil. That's about it. Oh, right. Um, I see. As opposed to uh, election. Got it. Okay. No one got my little jab. Hey. No? Okay. <laughs> well, Haiti, did you have anything on your mind today, or are you just hanging out listening for something spicy to jump in on? Oh, um, I don't know how interesting everyone will be in this, but I just wanted to point out that sounds creation, God cannot be omniscient because he has no justification for his beliefs. Oh, God. Huh? <laughs> um, I knew you wouldn't like this <laughs> Let's just say hi to D real fast and see what D has to say. All right, D. Hades, Hades is the one to beat. Hades is the one to beat. <laughs> I was listening to Hades, and I was like, you know what? I would like to hear their explanation regarding that. that All right, that speak to Hades. 
All right, Haiti's <laughs> question's on the table. Say it again, Haiti, and then someone else answer it. Sounds creation. What was it, um, what was it again? Sounds creation. It's impossible for God to be omniscient because knowledge is justified true belief, and he has no justification um, other than his own sort of internal mind, right? And if the only justification he has for his beliefs is internal, then he doesn't know that he's not a brain in a vat. All right, that sounds like something for you, Bubs. Nah, Haiti and I have already had the conversation a while ago. Yeah, I don't want to go back. Yeah, you just, you just got thing. mad and rage quit. Yeah, I got, I got, I got <laughs> mad because it was absolute BS. But all... You couldn't refute it, bro. Let, well, we can do it in another room. I don't. We can do it another time, Haiti. After Christian uh, fair. I was just thinking about it because you guys were fighting about what God knows and doesn't know. And I was thinking, <laughs> you don't think, you, no. don't, you can't know he knows anything. So I would like to throw a concept out there. So I'm, I try to liken it to, okay, I have children. I know their personality types. I know who they're going to be at the end of the day because you kind of just know. Um, and you know the possibilities of what they would do, but there are also things that might surprise you. And I'm not trying to say that God is surprised, but so I guess with kids, it's like you kind of, you have an idea of who they're going to be. Um, and maybe, maybe he's not really that involved in, the everyday decision of, am I going to get up and look to the left and say, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's not that necessary because we do have the freedom of choice for us to go through this process. But at the end of the day, the character of the person is what the character of the person is. I don't know. I'm, I, it's just so many questions for him to know, to be involved with so much of everything. It's like, why, what will be the point of praying? Or what will be the point of all these other questions just come about? And so if someone can break that down. Oh, it's the hyper-Calvinist question. Uh, and see, and I don't even know that that to be, you know, Calvinistic. I'm just, just spinning off the top of my head. So oh, no, 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 you're right. So I call it the hyper-Calvinist question because a lot of it comes of, oh, if this is known already and it's only one possibility actualized, et cetera, et cetera, what's the point of praying? What's the point of evangelizing? Isn't God just going to do it himself anyway, period? And the answer to that is scripture tells us and calls us to evangelize and pray. That's the answer. And the prayer is not more so for God. It's more so for our own spiritual benefit. That is a great answer because I feel like the more that we are aligned with what he wants us to do, the more we can live within the spirit. Because the more that I know that I'm not doing those things, I can just feel a a shift in my spirit. So I get that. Um, But on his side, like, you know, I don't know. It's just like if he knows all things, then then there's there. You know, for some people, what's the point of for them to try? If at the end of the day, our names are written in the book. I mean, I feel like my name's written in the book, so I'm gonna just do what I need to do. But I mean, it just goes into this multiple layered questions upon questions that adds even more questions. But I'm gonna land. <clears throat> No? No one else? What's up, Fury? I only have something. I only have, like, a, a, a comedic thing to add rather than a, um informative one. <laughs> I felt like I walked into Ask a Pharisee this morning. 
Why is that? I, I... The hubris. The hubris of oh. the logical <laughs> arguments. Oh, I mean, I, I get you there. Yeah, I, I think a lot Sorry, of Sorry, not, not, not ask, if you're, ask a Calvinist. That's what it is. <laughs> oh, you should have heard the first one. It was like, you know, we're like having a knockdown drag out over like what falling stars meant. I'm like, dude, no one, no one should care this much. Like, I only care this much because you guys care this much. Yeah, just wait till you hear about the infralapsarian conversation. That's why, like, there's so many beautiful little phrases that are, like, simple and sweet, <laughs> yet infinitely deep and complex. Like, you know, don't, don't you know, you need to don't see the forest for the trees or, you know, stuff like that, right? Like, the, these are all little insights into uh, the point. Have I put a damper on the on the mood? All right. Any any deep philosophical conversation is is allowed. Infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism. Rhode I Island. My mind. Neither a road nor an island. <laughs> Wait, Chris, what position do you take? Uh, the repent and believe the gospel one. I'm I'm in the middle of a network right now. I'm gonna have to bow for a minute. Isn't Chris a dispensationalist? Yeah, he's a dispensationalist. <laughs> no, I think Chris is actually like a, a what was it, a four and three quarters station Calvinist or something like that. <laughs> no, he's a, he, he's, he's a five pointer, but unfortunately, he's just a dispy. He'll, uh, well, I'll pray for him to get soon good enough. A dispensationalist. No, no, don't call him dispensationalist fully. That's too respectful. I call him dispies. Derogatory. <laughs> I don't have anywhere to go from here. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh? Yeah. Uh, Carlton, you missed the middle knowledge combo. Oh, someone's coming. Andricus. Hello. What have you brought to the table? Oh, I've been thinking about this the last week or so. How, and not all Christians make this argument, but many of the Calvinistic-leaning ones do. That there's this idea that God, in his very nature, is the source of moral obligation. The, the notion of moral obligations come from the very nature of this being, and yet this being has no moral obligations to its creation. And I just find that to be a very strange concept. Well, would a Calvinist like to... Creator-creature distinction. It doesn't, doesn't matter if we're talking about moral obligation, the source of moral obligation yeah right source of moral obligation god does not violate his own nature if the moral obligation is part of his nature god would not violate the moral obligation the moral obligation is not supposed to be given to the creation as not as again the creator creature distinction would distinguish the moral obligation of the creator to the moral obligation of the of the creature now if that's the case and god doesn't violate his nature he's never in violation of any moral obligation period including the one that he does not owe to the creator 
So if God is not morally morally obligated to anything, how could he be the source of moral obligation? How could his nature have anything to do with moral He's obligation? morally obligatory to himself within the three persons of the Trinity. To himself? So why does the why does the creator what what distinction, right, as far as moral obligation? Are you just saying there's a distinction between the creator? In the creation, as far as moral obligation is concerned, what is the thing that actually draws that distinction? Think that there would be no op that there would be no because you would say that the creature is morally morally obligated to the creator, but then you're going to say it's not true in the in the reverse. So why why is that why? Is the reason that it it is the case is because if we have God from one standpoint as the creator being the objective that's standard, just, that's that just is, restating the claim. I'm going to restate what I've said already, because what I've said already answers the question. Again, he's due to himself, and he's not violating his own nature. The only thing he is morally responsible to is himself and staying consistent with that nature. You've said that multiple times, but you haven't given us reasons to think that is the case. You're just saying, it is the case, because... Because if I give you, if I give you the evidence, you're going to say, I don't believe the scripture anyway. So I'm just describing what the case is. If you want an internal response and doing an eternal critique, you're going to get the scripture as a response. So it's a, what's the scripture? Yeah, what's the scripture? Sure. If we're looking at one second, I'll put up here. Word. Oh shoot! Give me a second. My phone got free. Uh, all right. Here's my charger. All right. Cool. Give me one minute. No problem. Oh yeah, Steph, I forgot. Yeah, you had a study whenever you get back. I'm I'm curious about that. Uh well, I guess Oh, Xbox. Hey hey, welcome. What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, good morning, man. How y'all doing? Good morning. Xbox. Y'all having a good morning? Yeah, I just Not I, really. I just, <laughs> I, just, I, just <laughs> I just posed a question, uh, Xbox that we had talked about earlier that I'm posing the question about the uh, source of moral obligation uh, having no obligation towards its moral obligation towards its creatures and why that is the oh, okay yeah we'll, we'll talk about morality quite a bit yesterday why the creatures it's only a one-way moral obligation and I'm just trying to understand why that is yeah right I, I remember that popping up has anybody made the like well, uh, argument? Bubs is trying to say. Yeah, I'm pulling up the scriptures right now. He's Bub says there's there's scriptures that establish this, and that's fine if the scriptures are just going to restate the claim. But that's not really interesting to me. What would be more interesting is to make the case. You know, the creator creature the creator creator creature distinction doesn't seem to be a significant reason to think that there would be no obligation. Um, so I'm just wondering what else. Well, let me put it this way. The creator-creature distinction, think about it as the parent-child distinction. The parent isn't, a, a, the child isn't from in any way to ask anything of their uh, of their parent in the sense that oh, the parent a terrible example. Them. They don't owe them something. <laughs> the child owes the parents. It's not what? the parent owing the child. Parents still have moral obligations to that. their children. Are you kidding? I am. Um... I well, can't we just say do something to my children? And uh, look, you can just be a really bad parent, right? Yeah. Just well, the in guys... virtue of your being a parent doesn't make you a good one. 
Well, can I we say for the question. Christian? Can, can we say for the the Christian, the scripture would suffice, and for the not Christian who doesn't care about this anyway, might makes right. That's the answer. Let's move on. Or is that too simple? Yeah, I just went over. Carlton said he wanted to respond to. I wanted to make sure he has a chance to also. Sure. Yeah. Hey, what's up, yo? Sorry, I just woke up. So, um, I think. Dang it, there was. Oh yeah, I was gonna ask Andrew because on your view, like, I guess, or I guess on the Christian view, I'd say, I think that the obligation stems from the imperative, not from the nature, and so I guess it would seem weird for God to give himself imperatives. And so I, I guess that's why the question doesn't make as much sense to me. Cause I'm not really sure where, where the obligations coming from in your critique. Well, it's going to be towards the Christian that you're talking about divine command theory. I'm talking more about the Christian that says that the notion of morals, what morals are, flows from the very nature of god from his being that's just an intrinsic do you part. do you acknowledge do you acknowledge a distinction between like virtues and obligations like that there is a good and then my obligation to do the good would be two distinct things yeah, at least on my... obligations would seem to be dependent on virtue i agree and so that's why i guess in the divine command theory that would make sense but yeah because I, I heard you jump from the obligation part, and then you said that morals kind of uh, stem from the nature. But when I'm hearing that, it sounds like I, I'm hearing virtue. Is that what you mean, or do you mean something different? I think it's going to be all intermixed, because if we're talking about God has these virtues, right, which morality flows from, the the notion of obligations yeah, comes I, from the I think this is why the nuance is important, because I think with God being the grounding of the good and like, I guess if like if we're just saying a Christian view, if God is the good and then our moral obligations to the good come from the imperatives from the good, then that would kind of help distinguish where that's why I guess there wouldn't be in a sense a moral obligation on God because he's the source of the imperative. And I guess the obligation would come from the imperative of the good. Um I do think that still there are some things that God would will by necessity, like the good of his own nature, and he can will some things necessarily or contingently, but uh, or he can he can will a necessary means through a contingent, uh, a necessary end through a contingent means. But if he necessarily wills the good, that would be different from saying that there's an obligation, unless you're talking about just the constraints of his own nature. At least that's how I think Christians would view it. Unless they're volunteers, yeah, it still doesn't make sense to me um, to say that the notion of moral obligation comes from this being. Right? It is what the, the he his very nature says there should be moral obligations. Right? That's his very nature. So at least you're not responding to my position. You're responding to that other position about something in in the nature. Because I guess I, I just well, heard it doesn't I, I, make well, I don't think you're saying I don't think you're disagreeing. You're you're just having a way of saying it that says it's a one way moral obligation, um, the creature to the uh, to the creator. And I'm just not I'm still not certain how you're establishing. Respectfully, I, I just I think I kind of broke it down. Are you able to engage or restate my position so I can see that you understood it? Uh, you said the good. He is the good, and it's imperatives that come from him. No. To, 
Yeah, you, those were words you did. Yeah, use. yeah, I did. I used the word "good" and "imperative." Did you say he is the good and imperative? Did I did I hear you say that? Yeah, that's, you said he is yeah. the good, right? Yeah, and that, but I didn't say that he's his imperatives. I said the imperatives come from that, but they're distinct from the good itself. How and I said the obligation because something comes from it. It's like a ray that comes from the sun isn't the sun. Like, so when I say that the virtues ground ontologically... That doesn't make good, sense, because then you're saying somehow the imperatives would coalesce apart from his nature into something else that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I don't see how this is... Okay, so let me say that, yeah, the same way that I guess a ray comes from the sun, but isn't the sun, like an imperative could come in the form of a command that's not the same as the nature. It might reflect the nature, but it's not the nature. And so if I'm saying, hey, you have good virtue and then that doesn't have any sort of moral obligation entailed in it it is just the good and then the imperative would be what grounds the obligation to do the good like but i don't the, see how that's a very hard much distinction. Of a distinction other than there are like you know maybe spatially different occurrences but you're not drawing any distinction between what they actually are because it seems the I, content is exactly the no well, an imperative and a virtue i would be different I guess that a virtue and an obligation, like those are I don't different. See how those are going to be different? Yeah, I guess the same way that a ray from the sun is, or the fact that there's just some sort of metaphysical, like let's say even on Platonism, right? Even though I'm not Platonist, let's just say there's just this thing that's just out there that just is. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of obligation to do that thing. Some sort of imperative, at least on my view. And I think that yeah, that the, tends to. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I thought you were done. Uh, no, you're good, but I just. When somebody kind of hand waves away the nuance of the distinction and just says that, I don't see how that wouldn't be a distinction without a difference. I don't see how that would be a distinction without a difference. I think it is. Well, with with what you're saying, I'm following with what you're saying about the, the I think the sun analogy was a good one. Um, but didn't that kind of beg the question, one, why ought one follow God, God's um, uh, imperatives? What what precept was it? Because it's, it's death. A, otherwise, that's a psychological. That's a psychological <laughs> issue. That's that's moral psychology. Uh, what I think Andrews was pointing at is that if the obligations are grounded in the good, there's a question: What do you mean by good? There is it a normative good or is it some sort of descriptive "quote unquote" good? Because if if it's the first one, then the obligations are entailed, like you're analytically deriving right. them. And if it's the second one, you can't even derive them from it. That's right. So like the, the question is is the good normative or descriptive? He, he's on the he didn't hear anything you yeah, just told yeah. me. Got a phone call. Got a phone. That's um supernatural thank you, intervention. Thank you, that, thank you, Zilli. That's exactly what I. I did like on my screen. I didn't show that he's on the phone. Mine did. He's got a little red. Little yeah. Phone he... on. Well, let's say hi to Daily Shadow. What's up, the Shadow? Hey, the shadow. The shadow. Of course, he's not speaking. What about you, Ignatius? Oh, Carlton's back. Intensus. Okay, Carlton's back. Why don't you say what you said again, Zelina? Yeah. So, uh, no, he's nope. again on the there, call. There <laughs> what is happening? Great. Great. <laughs> he, he's he's doing it on purpose. Oh, like, God is trying to give us. He's... God is trying to give us a way out of this conversation. Pilot, do you have a response for it? Or anything you want to add on? Nah, not really. Well, I think, I think Nathan, you what you jumped in and said. 
was fine and good. I think he was just looking for the verses that, that back it up for a Christian. How, how you said to get past it, I, I, I thought would be a, a sufficient answer. And it's not like a really in, like in depth kind of thing, but I think it's, it's, it's you know, sufficient. It's, yeah, what's the next question in this argument? What is truth? What is objective truth? Like, how convoluted would you guys like to get? I want to get to the ones <laughs> where we don't know if we exist or not. I want to go there. Exactly, because that's where this this leads this the same reasoning and logic. Just start there. It's like it's Come like picking picking apart the English language, trying to look for uh, some sort of crutch My uh, PTR to, to put Christianity upon. Just repent and believe the gospel. Done, done, and done. You want too sweet? If not, do what you want. <laughs> but other I say news. That, no one else has anything to say. So yes, other news. Other news. You have other news. I have. Please, Jesus, better have other news. There's, there's better white philosophy. Oh, Steph, you're back. Were you, oh, are you done being the yes. good daughter? I'm done. Uh, the yes. dutiful daughter-in-law. <laughs> no, my wonderful mother-in-law is here watching uh, my daughter today, so I can work and talk to you guys. <laughs> All right. All right. You have a study. Okay, I have found, actually, I have not found. Chad sent this to me, and we had a really great conversation about it. Look, I have pinned it to the top. Groundbreaking study. Okay, I would like to discuss this. Um, so I'm super disappointed to say that this study has been funded by someone and has found its way to IFL Science, which is a website that I actually find to be fairly reputable and interesting. However, somebody spent money on a study where the outcome is cheating on your spouse can be highly satisfying. Adultery isn't so bad as long as you're the one committing it. So this is <laughs> this no is the topic I'm putting way. on the table. So, so would you would you guys like me to read this groundbreaking, shocking, I mean, revolutionary I study? I think it's kind of self-explanatory. If you're the one cheating, you're the only one getting gratification out of it. So yeah, it, it makes sense. Oh no, you mean the satisfaction goes beyond the sex, right? Yeah, well, that's okay. So there's there's elements to this study, which again are all right. Here, I'm just I'm gonna read it. Okay, are we all? We're all, down all for right, so oh, I'm ready. Let's hear your argument for polyamory. Go ahead. That's not polyamory, Bubs, as you very well know. All right, hit it, Steph. Okay, adultery ain't so bad as long as you're the one committing it. Relationship cheaters get a bad rap. Boo. But new research suggests that married people who have affairs often feel great about their infidelity and are rarely racked with guilt. Even more surprisingly, the study authors found that cheating is not generally motivated by a lack of love for one's spouse or unhappiness in one's marriage, and that playing the field doesn't always lead to relationship problems. The researchers surveyed 2,000 registered users of Ashley Madison, a website... Problem. What? They're the methodology problem. Oh, we're going to get there. We're, they have many. The researchers surveyed 2,000 registered users of Ashley Madison, a website that hooks up married people who want an affair. Okay, so this is our, this is our pool of people that we're studying. After analyzing participants' responses regarding the state of their marriage, their motivation for cheating, and their overall life satisfaction, the authors detected some surprising trends. You guys ready to be surprised? I'm ready. People have a diversity of motivations to cheat, explained the study author Dylan Selterman in a statement. Sometimes they'll cheat even if their relationships are pretty good. We don't see solid evidence here that people's affairs are associated with lower relationship quality or lower life satisfaction. Curiously, 
Cheaters reported high levels of love for their spouse and rarely cited issues like anger or lack of commitment towards their significant other as the main reason for playing away from home. However, around half of participants said they were not sexually active with their partner and identified a lack of sexual satisfaction as the driving force behind their infidelity. We're halfway through. A desire for independence and greater sexual diversity also stood out as motivating factors. Surprise. And most respondents reported high levels of satisfaction in their extramarital affairs. In popular media, television shows, and movies and books, people who have affairs have this intense moral guilt. And we just don't see that in this sample of participants, said Salterman. Ratings for satisfaction was high. Sexual satisfaction and emotional satisfaction and feelings of regret were low. These findings paint a more complicated picture of infidelity compared to what we thought we knew. Because you're Results also people that are using Ashley Madison. <laughs> oh, exactly. Okay. Results indicated that results indicated that engaging in extracurricular activities was not linked to a decrease in relationship quality with one's spouse. However, the authors point out the vast majority of respondents were middle-aged men using this website, and it's unclear if this contentedness is shared by women or non-binary oh people. Oh my gosh, what affairs. a trash study. This is so... Hold on, we're almost at the oh end. It gets better. The best part is the end. Okay, the study also failed to include any of the participants' partners. So it's not possible to say whether those who are cheated on agree with the comments of their unfaithful Great. spouses. Oh my but God. nonetheless, nonetheless, Selterman says that the take-home point for me is that maintaining monogamy or sexual exclusivity, especially across people's lifespans, is, quote, really, really hard. With the people just... This is the last line. People just assume that their partners are going to be totally satisfied having sex with just one person for 50 years of their lives. But turns out a lot of people fail at it. What a horrible study. So, oh, so my, my summarization of this entire article is, I don't like commitment. I want to have sex with lots of people. Is that about right? Well, the sort of people who go to Ashley Madison are not, they're like the most brazen cheaters you can find. They're like, Doing it on purpose, right, that, that, right? That's like the NBA of cheaters right yeah. there. Like, but like first you start on Tinder if you're like if you're starting in like high school varsity, right? Then you go on to like actual bars and getting people <laughs> numbers for like college, right? And then the moment you get on Ashley Madison, nah bro, you're a certified professional at that. I would be surprised if you cared if you went on Ashley Madison and yeah, you cared about yeah. cheating. Bro, that's a bad uh, sound. I think this is just a societal norm we've placed on ourselves this whole moral obligation of being faithful to your partner. You know, that's a good point. Now, if you have a partner, say you're going to cheat on them because you because you placed a moral obligation on yourself unnecessarily, and then let us know what they respond with. Right. If I'm standing at the altar, <laughs> okay, and Chad says, I promise to be faithful to you until I get bored, then I'm going to be like, hold on. Like, this is not how we're doing this. And then, and then he could pull out this study and be like, well, this study shows that if I get bored, I'm going to be super satisfied in uh, extracurricular activities. So you have to believe it. You know, it's not going to be you because it says that even if we're happy, I'm still going to do it. Wait, I Katie. mean, it might be a little bit of societal, but I, I haven't said anything. Hold on, wait, Sorry, wait. somebody said there was a keeps... societal expectation. Yeah, I was making a joke me. about it, about uh, the early, uh, all these moral arguments. Okay, like, because this sorry. points it out, right? Like, if you have empathy, guess what? That's inherent. It should be anyway in any normal working adult. 
and thus you should understand the the importance of having a, a, a rooted morality as opposed to a subjective one. Okay, you sound very like Andricus, just so that's why I got confused. <laughs> but no, I yeah, yeah. don't think a rooted like morality. No, I, it's I, just I, it's I just like a, what is that? Look, if I if I say to my husband, "Oh, you know, I want to like have sex with a man," I can like literally see almost an instinctual response of like, "Hell no," yeah. you know. Not nothing about society. Yeah, and we so, would thank you for introducing the study. Um, I guess for some reason I knew you were really study excited about in it. Quotation marks. <laughs> I think it's groundbreaking. I mean, this is the results of this study are essentially, um, you know, selfish people enjoy being selfish, or like uh, heroin addicts enjoy heroin. You know, I mean, I don't think that any of us could have come up with this. this um, well, Steph, the question is, why is it wrong? It's not. This study finds that it's perfectly fine because the spouse who doesn't know has no problem. That's the result. <laughs> Even yeah, though we a, the spouse as, is like, yeah, I have a problem. Yeah, as an atheist, um, ask uh, Haiti why it's wrong. <laughs> Haiti, uh, you said that, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think having sex with other people is wrong, but I think lying and hurting people is wrong. But if your husband did it to you, you probably would feel a certain way that's like, well, I don't like that. Why, why would what would be your basis right. for that? Um, why would you be unhappy if he's like, "Hey, I like having sex with lots of women for diversity of oh, sex"? Oh, I don't know. I think he he would probably. I mean, would you be like, "Yeah, let me get you a cake. That's amazing and brave." Well, no, but I mean, it, you, you might can't let her answer. Your, you might feel you know jealous or whatever. You might have some kind of primeval like he's supposed to be caring for my babies, not some other woman's babies. Um, but a lot of people don't have those jealousies, and they're perfectly happy in open marriages, and I have absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. I'm, again, it's just whether you do it ethically or not that I have a problem with. And actually, Madison, my understanding is is that it's secret, right? It's not polyamory. It's not open marriages. Right. It's just some, like, grubby cheating because it sounds like they're not getting enough sex from their wives. I just guys anyway, and I, that's how they rationalize. I just think there's more examples, um, you know, we can find usually by like murder and suicide and people incarcerated. Uh, that will be the evidence I'll cite for this. We can find more examples of that, like, you know, love triangles gone wrong and things like that with people who say it's fine. And, you know, you can have different sexual partners and, you know, these are not Christians, um, you know, so they're like, you can have sex with different partners and so will I and blah, blah, blah. It's all wonderful and great until someone gets jealous. For what reason? They said it was all cool. It was all consensual. They all agreed. But then jealousy rears its head for some reason because it's just normal, right? We're all animals. We're all base base creatures. So why why is there a problem? And then one thing leads to another, and then you know people get shot and died and suicide and incarcerated. So there's got to be some <laughs> something. There, there's got <laughs> hey, hey, wait 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 hang on hang on hang on. There's got to be something like intrinsic about us that we're really not as cool with like you know free love as people would like to say they are. Sure, there are some. But I would say there's a lot more cases, you know, the end with like, you know, bitterness, rage up to and including, you know, homicidal mania, um, you know, with different love partners. Well, you've got uh, a wild theory that um, there's a certain number of murders in prison caused by polyamorous lifestyles, which I think you're going to have to provide evidence for. Most likely the murders are like you come home and, you know, your wife's in bed with someone else. So you like shoot the guy in a rage. Right. But that's. That's because you didn't know. <laughs> what so I don't think it's right. This study would have had the, uh, crimes of passion. 
Right. This study would have had something if it said 2,000, you know, 1,000 couples. So 2,000 people who are willfully and excitedly engaging in polyamory report high satisfaction in there. Then we'd be like, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, here's the random sample of people who are openly practicing this and who are now we can ask them these questions. <laughs> this is not what this study is, right? No. Like, it's not the time. Let me just clarify real quick. I said up to and including. So yeah, I get your point. There's plenty of crimes of passion stuff, but you know, not everyone who's like, I'm in a polyamorous relationship is like murdering people. I'm saying up to and including, but I think, and I've talked to him like, goodness, there's this, like this ex Mormon, then Christian, then like Hindu or Buddhist or something like they were flip-flopping everywhere. And then I didn't see him for a while in one of these rooms like years ago. And then they're like, I'm in a polyamorous relationship now. I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, then the next time I saw him, they're like, it didn't work out. He cheated on me. I'm like, you said you're cool. And he's like, I know I couldn't handle it. So I, my, my whole thesis on this would be it goes wrong, not always murder and death, but it goes wrong um, more than not. That's my premise. People that say they can handle it, like friends with benefits, like people who say they can People, Google. I'm saying it's like people with friends with benefits, <laughs> like, you know, more people would say they can handle friends with benefits than those who actually can. Well, I just understand I about marriage. My uh, evidence is Google. People think, least people think they can handle marriage. Um, but if you look at the divorce rates and the infidelity rates, I could just say, look, it seems like marriage isn't really working out, guys. Uh, there's a lot of uh, married people in prison, you know. I mean, I just don't. I just, I just think you're going off of like maybe some people you've known or anecdotes, but I don't know if there's any actual evidence for any of this. But we do have evidence about marriage stats, and they're pretty great. Well, I think we're we're firing past each other's bows here. We're missing it because the so what we know is that polyamory for a long term, like lifelong, fulfilling relationship is not sustainable right what, or especially we know that no, we from... don't know that. so so we do right there i'm gonna have to from where i'm gonna have to dig okay so there are studies on this because and here's the reason i know this. so my unfortunately my brother has been married he's younger than me but he married his middle school sweetheart right and they've been together 15 years and she's wanted an open marriage and he said i'm not really cool with that and then she said oh cool well then i'm leaving you um, well, initially he agreed, it was kind of a complicated, he agreed that she could, and then he was like, okay, change my mind. I, I don't want to do this. So then she said, oh, by the way, I've been sleeping with other people for the past 10 years. Right. So that's kind of irrelevant to this conversation. So they're over now. Um, but the point is that, uh, when I was talking to my counselor about it and I was like, listen, how horrifying he produced all of these studies in the field of psychology, right? So this is where about the unsustainability of, um, polyamory or uh, unfaithful, intentional unfaithfulness if the goal is lifelong commitment. However, the caveat seems to be if all parties enter this and meet each other under this pretense, like, okay, we are going to do this and we're going to go into this relationship, it seems to be more, it's wildly unsustainable if your expectation is to have a lifelong commitment. But it seems to work if three parties come together and agree, like, this is what we're going to do. Uh, but still, the numbers on that are people don't usually stay together for very long under that arrangement. So not, that's what I'm... You could say the same about marriage. Yeah. also not great for a lifelong commitment. What? I said you could say the same. I could show you a study about divorce rates 
that shows that marriage is also not a good bet for life. Oh, yeah, it's totally about divorce, right? The one but, but... thing this study got right is it said staying faithful to one person your whole life is really, really hard. Like, I don't think anybody, that's correct. Like the best marriage, if you picture the best marriage, my grandparents had the best marriage or like my best friend's parents were like the best couple. They loved each other their whole lives. And you ask them, was it, they're going to say it was the hardest freaking thing, right? I don't think anyone is saying that it's easy to do. So I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the divorce rate is it counts people who were married for 20 or 30 years, the same as people who got divorced after a year. And I don't, I'm not sure if that's an adequate representation of success. Well, it's the goal of marriage, particularly in the Christian paradigm, is till death do us part. As an institution, it is failing in that goal, whether you marry for 20, you know, 20 years or six months. It, it's still a failure of the idea of it. Yeah, you know, so you can't point to like polyamorous, can't even say the word polyamorous relationships that like don't work out without pointing out that marriages don't work out. But and I don't even know which work out less. Right, you're right. Right, the divorce rate is really high, and the divorce rate among Christians is like also not great. Like it's, I think it's pretty similar. Um, so it's you know nobody is claiming that marriage is like everybody should do it because it's this wonderful unbreakable bond that no it's like it's hard right it's hard and it takes work and a huge amount of people fail at it i mean i don't even know what the numbers are for people who stay married at, by the age of 70 if they've been married 50 years how many have remained faithful the entire time it's probably Plus the argument funny. isn't like what's the best marriage here uh haiti the the argument was what are most human beings okay with right from a moral perspective well, they're not okay with marriage. Your argument is shifting into like, oh, this, this you know. No, I'm not. Some, my some sort of crux against the the concept of marriage. I get that, but no, that's not no, the no, point no. of the I'm argument. Just, the point is, is that you're holding marriage as this like default, you know, the best way to do things, and you're saying polyamory doesn't work, and people, you know, okay. they think they will kill each other, and blah blah blah. Well, are you aware of what cultures were very popular with what? polyamory oh, and how women were treated in those cultures? It's not like they had a chance. Yeah, what about, the, what about the patriarchy? What about that? Isn't that a is that a good thing now? <laughs> like um, I thought we were. I thought the patriarchy is bad. That, that's good now. Who's, like, I'm not sure what that's referring. Well, like I mean, that seems like where where this is going, right? Because then it's like, oh, everyone can you know be free and consensual, and then we know from Steph's study, like you know, like the the overwhelming majority of people into this are men versus women. So you can just see the inevitable conclusion is going to be back to, you know, like medieval times. The, the patriarchy is rising because men want this and women don't. And they're subjugating them. They're pressuring them. Ah. Sort of oppression of women or polygamy or something. I'm not no, sure just na what. name like, me a time when women were, were what's happening is like polygamy. What's happening is if everyone gets on board what with this. What's happening about polygamy? Polygamy. What, what? Well, your argument was for a bit. Oh my God, you, you, you were trying to say like. How do we know that marriage yes. is? Yeah, if you guys are going to let her talk, this conversation is going to go nowhere. you got to let her. Okay, well, so we have a couple of elements here. We have, right. so the Christian They're, they're not going to let you talk. No, I do. I, I always try to get interrupted a lot. But I want to bring Andrew, it back Because you cut off multiple people, by the way, throughout your conversations with others, so I'd stay quiet if you want to cudgel at people. Well, no, Andrikus. Uh, what are you talking Andy about? Well, you did Andy cut Anytime times in that little conversation here, and I don't really appreciate it. We're having so we a, a normal conversation. Why are you guys being dull? A normal conversation where you just over me? When I was trying to say something and you cut me off, you call that a normal conversation? 
Oh my yeah, god, I cut you off once while you were on. talking. Twice. It's happened. not once. It's oh my not god. once. It's like Haiti, what would you like to say, Haiti? I so I I think that I want to hand it to Haiti right after this, but we have a couple elements, right? Of course, the Christian is going to argue that monogamy and in our modern culture, marriage, a committed marriage that's committed to monogamy that has both partners have the same moral understanding and faith uh, is going to be the best possible situation. What I would say to another young Christian is marry a Christian. This is the best possible situation. However, we live in a world where even Christian marriages fall apart, perhaps even especially Christian marriages fall apart. Most modern, you know, a lot of modern American marriages don't make it for one reason or the other. But I'm, I don't think that the marriage topic or the, the monogamy topic is quite like it doesn't go alongside the like, Haiti, you're arguing that marriage isn't a good institution because it falls apart. No, but we're saying no, it's no. OK, yeah, go ahead all the problems you can point out with um or even just like you know being single and playing the field and whatnot yeah they have lots of detrimental effects but so does the institution of marriage and that's what i was trying to say i'm not bashing marriage i'm not actually defending polyamory and to compare it to like you see i think the problem you guys have is you think it's just men like getting sex from women and treating them terribly and moving on and you have a kind of aversion to that, that is not actually what polyamory is, right? That's just like guys being, you know, jerks. Um, and guys can be jerks to their wives just as much as they can be jerks to their one-night stands. It's not really about that. That's what I was trying to say. It's got nothing to do with polygamy, and it's got nothing to do with, like, playboys and being jerks. Yeah, and what I was trying to say that I thought Haiti asked me to explain um, I mean, I didn't bring up the polygamy thing, but I, I mean, where I talk about the patriarchy, you can see where it's going, is, yes, in a perfect world, right? Like, you know, my example earlier, like the perfect world where, you know, the female was like, I'm in a polyamorous relationship now. It's, you know, amazing, and we love each other, and it's consensual, and, you know, the third girl, because um, in these relationships, in my humble experience, um, girls outnumber the guys, but whatever, that's anecdotal, um, but Anyway, the other girl is amazing, and they get along so much, and they love each other, and, you know, the guy, he's cool too, and blah, blah, blah. And that, that's what I was saying. So, like, overwhelmingly, um, it seems like men are the ones into this more than women. But, yes, it's supposed to be a loving, committed relationship or thruple or whatever. But it usually I, – I was just saying you can see how people will say, no, no, it's a problem because men are abusing this or not doing it the right way. Which, even if that's if that's not a perfect world, it's still a problem that will arise. Like they're saying, no, no, that's not what polyamory is supposed to be. It doesn't matter. That's what people are going to use and game the system and turn it into. That was my point. I, I don't even think it's mostly men anymore. I think that a lot of the time, it, you know, it, it's like the situation with my brother. It was her, like the the guys outnumbered the girls and, and the girl in that situation. But there are a lot of people like this is what young women. It's almost like there's this fear of settling down and, and there's a fear of monogamy, right? It's what this study cited. Like people are afraid of being physically or emotionally committed to one person for their entire life, or maybe afraid isn't the right word, but they don't find this appealing um, and they don't find the work that goes into it. But I don't think it's just men anymore. I think that's like the stereotype, but in of people I know who have open marriages and I know four couples that are doing this, uh, it actually in three of them, it wasn't the husband's idea. All right, well, you convinced me, so drop off a harem at my house, and I'll let my wife know. I'll tell her this is the <laughs> yeah, way no, it's, it's been endorsed by women. 
It's been endorsed by oh. women in my church group. So you know, I, all right, I why? endorse adults doing whatever fulfills them, and as long as they're not hurting other people. I'll let my wife know that she's. This, yeah. Well, presumably your wife wouldn't be on board, so it wouldn't be ethical for you to start, uh, you know, playing around. So that's not going to. Watch, I'm going to end up having Haiti arguing against polyamory by the time this is done. Well, I'm um, not. I, look, <laughs> look, it's obviously not for everyone, right? If you, I mean, I'm just in a position where I've removed this, oh, sex is bad from my mentality. So if two people just don't get jealous or, or God forbid, they find it kind of exciting to hear about their partner's adventures, I just don't <laughs> see where the harm is. Um, <laughs> once, once you take away your, you know, 2000 year old morality um as long as no one's getting hurt and, and i would say it's very tricky if there are children involved i might not endorse that as long as no one's getting hurt what's the problem so, well because well, hurt is subjective. Be well hurt is subjective right. uh, well, real fast, Steph. um uh, yeah I, I would just say you know besides the the spirituality stuff the christian stuff if they don't like that fine do what you want however what you just said uh, you know made me i wanted to explain my chuckle on some primal level, you said if you can find it, if people find it exciting about how their partner was hooking up with someone else. On some primal level, regardless of you know my Christian beliefs, I guarantee I would not find it exciting to hear how my partner got nailed by some um, other dude. So, so some people that's the thing. Yeah, I know, and we have a word, for, and we have a word for that, and it's a pejorative. Uh, go ahead, uh, Steph. Um. So. <sighs> I think that what the, what the Christian would advocate for here is not that sex is bad, right? I don't, I mean, there certainly is that history in the church and there's, you know, I was brought up by my family to feel like, oh, this is something we don't talk about. But, you know, my kids are still little, but when they're older, it's something that I think is, is going to be fine to talk about because sex is not bad. However, what I intend to teach my children and what I have found out uh, is that sex is precious, right? So the Christian worldview is going to be that the ideal for us, and again, I'm speaking to other Christians, when it's, as Nate already said, when we step out of people who are claiming Christianity or who are under this. Many Christians law, who disagree. Hold on. Right. No, I understand that. I already conceded that. But so the idea is not that sex is bad, that sex is evil or that sex is shameful. Sex is very good. God created it, right? For a reason, for multiple reasons. We would, I would argue from a Christian worldview that sex is precious and the highest level of intimacy that you can have with somebody, you should ideally share with one other person. And so that's where we're going to come from is not this point of like, you know, 1300s monk shaming and whipping people. It's the idea that like, why, you know, it loses its preciousness. It loses its sacredness if you open yourself up to these other things. However, like I said, I know four couples who are doing this and I have never said this to any of them because they're not Christians and this is what they're choosing to do. So have it. Where do you well, live you are... that you know four oh, couples sorry, who are... Ah, we'll give you three guesses. You get three guesses. <laughs> yeah. Guess the state I'm in. <laughs> You'll get it. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't know anyone. I just think it's funny. I'm Seattle or Portland. Nope. It's <laughs> one that starts with a, a U. So I am in a town in upstate New York that has a reputation for being the ah. most liberal. Oh. There is an Ivy League college here, and so this is like the actually <laughs> two of Wait, the four are professors. At this is it near Cornell? It, I, or, I do. Like actually, it makes more sense. Yep, now. that's where that makes more sense. All these yeah. degenerate college professors. I got. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a lot of witch covens here uh, <laughs> for, for 
So if this is where, yeah, there's a co-working space that I want to wanted to rent, but it turned out okay. it was run by a witch coven, so I ran the other. Well, as a Christian, witches are people too. What what um what argument are you gonna make about the? Um, I know you're not gonna make an argument to your kids, but what argument are are you using to support um, what you said that you would you would teach your kids there? So. Um, when it comes to my children, this is different because this is in my own home, right? So one of my friends, Josh, and his wife, Julia, that are that are doing this open marriage thing, right? They're not Christians. So I, I don't love hearing about it. You know, when they talk about it, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. But I'm not sitting them down and correcting their lifestyle. They're not under the law. They're not like living, you know, they're not submitted to Christ. So there's, I can't, it, like we have a million hurdles that we have to leap. Like you need Christ as your savior, savior. here's the gospel. That's going to happen long before I say one word about their marriage. Okay, first of all. Yeah. But when it comes to my children, we're in a, these, are, these are human beings that I'm responsible for building up from nothing, from zero. So what I would teach my daughter is that this is a very precious gift. Her body and her emotions, her heart, her mind, and her spirit, these are very precious things that she has to give to somebody. And if you give them out to anybody and, you know, to everyone and anyone who might seem interesting, you're, you're cheapening it. You're losing something that's really beautiful in life. Now, if she makes that decision before she's 18, I'm going to kick her butt. If she makes <laughs> the decision after she's 18, then, you know, that's, that's that she'll be an adult. Well, that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm uh, actually questioning is like where from a Christian point of view is the how you're teaching her that it's a precious thing and and all that like i i agree with you that it is a, a precious thing but from a christian point of view where's that um gonna come from that this is sacred and precious to you and and you should you know you should only share it in a certain way and i gotcha how would i defend that from the faith perspective is what you're asking from the bible yeah, yeah, yeah essentially yeah yeah, oh, perfect, perfect. yeah the bible yeah. The Bible talks about this. Now, the Bible also has multiple examples of um, particularly men and sometimes women who were um, adulterous or unfaithful or who were engaged in, in polygamous relationships, right? But we have to look at each of those. There's no instance where the Bible advocates for this. Um, what it does talk about is how marriage should function. And for me, the more important part is that Christ is drawn as the parallel, like our relationship with Christ is as a marriage. He is unwaveringly faithful to us. He gave us what is most precious. Now, that is like good, him and then a bunch of people, I guess you could argue. But it's like we each have this individual relationship with God, right? And so we model our marriages after what Christ did for us. The woman and the man are each called to different roles, like to different responsibilities. The woman is to submit and support. And there's a whole thing we can unpack there. The man is to lay down his entire life and see it as forfeit for his wife. So that's where I would model it is that this is precious. This relationship involves sex. It involves emotional intimacy. And I would always tell my daughter that shouldn't be handed out freely. Not to mention you the Bible talks. Like... I'd love to hear. Well, I'd love to. Since you ask, like from a Christian perspective, I'd love to get Pastor Mark's take if he's been here long enough to hear this mess we're discussing. But I would say, you know, the Bible like clearly states things like, you know, for for this, you know, a man will leave his mother and father, and he'll go off and be with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Um, so there's not a whole lot of room unless we're saying, you know, 
one man doesn't mean one man and you know his wife means multiple um so things like that in the bible but if pastor mark's been around long enough to kind of get the gist of what we're talking about i'd love to hear him if he needs a minute to catch up uh, that's fine too hey it's my balloon day happy anniversary yeah it's two years can't believe it time flies when you're not having fun anyway how much yeah. regret do you have over hitting that i want to j- download the clubhouse app how much regret <laughs> No, no. Overall, it's been good. It's been good. So I, I got a photo I want to send you, Nate, of somebody banging their head against something because you always talk about <laughs> that. So. Um, Steph, you were referring to the passage in Ephesians 5, which is a great passage on marriage, the end of the chapter, how the marriage pictures Christ and his church. And that's why faithfulness in marriage or unfaithfulness in marriage is such a travesty because it destroys the picture that is supposed to be portrayed. I've got a phone call there. Christ's unfailing love for his church. So that's really good. Um, When I talk to young people, I actually have um, a couple who's in their early 20s who've just asked me to do pre-engagement counseling. Now, you don't hear that too much. You hear premarital, but pre-engagement counseling. So that's going to be interesting. But um, the more you can save yourself for the person that you will marry, the more faithfulness and trust you'll have in that marriage. Uh, For example, if if, uh, a lady says, you know what, this guy is asking to marry me, he's kept his hands off, during all this time, he's got personal discipline. Uh, and now that we're thinking about marriage, I know I can marry him. And his personal discipline and godliness will carry him through and, and likely keep him faithful to me because he's got that discipline. Whereas if you know they've been doing stuff before marriage, then after the wedding, they have some hurdles because they're thinking, man, if you did this before we were married, what would you do with other people, you know, and there's some trust issues that have to be overcome. Um, One of my favorite verses for talking to uh, young people is Genesis 4, 1, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bare Cain. And that's a great way to have the talk with your seventh grade or eighth grade, whatever year you decide to do it. And then Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Okay, obviously God's the one that created sex, so it's a wonderful thing in marriage, in marriage. And despite the study up at the top, I think you can also find plenty of studies that show how the um, unfaithfulness can be something that ruins your life and gives you regret for years and years to come. Anyway, enough said. Can somebody give me the analogous property between Christ and the church and marriage? I, I, I that, that parallel yes, has always time. disturbed the heck out of me. Even when I was a Christian, I did not like the analogy at all. So can somebody tell me what the analogous property or what, Mark, what a few of them that? might be? Well, let me go ahead and just um, tell you what the Lord says in the Bible about it. It's Ephesians 5.25. Husbands. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. And I'll skip a little. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh. Almost done. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So that's where we get the Christian perspective from. Yeah, what's the analogous property between Christ and the church? And Love, okay, Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for it. So as a husband, I need to love my wife and give myself for her. Um, you know, if there's not love in the marriage, that's according to the Bible, that's the husband's fault. Because if he loves the church, uh, or Christ loves the church and we love him back, so the husband's responsible to love his wife. And then if he's doing it scripturally and properly, uh, she will respond by loving him back. In okay. cases. Love and sacrifice are not unique properties to marriage relationships. Those exist in all forms of relationships. So that's obviously not a very uh, unique, that wouldn't specify that uh, the Christ church relationship is necessarily analogous to is there any other analogous property there? Besides wait, so love? this is a good wait, wait, point. Is that you're pointing out real quick, you're pointing out exactly the issue is that you're seeing the love within a marriage as open to um, like this is possible for other relationships. But what's being described is a type of love that is unique and exclusive. So, you know, of course, we have the love that you have for your spouse is not the love that you have for your best friend or even your children. And keep in mind, he, he answered it like he ended reading and it said just what he was talking about. So it wasn't open-ended. He said, for this reason, you will leave, you know, your mother and father and the two, two, not, you know, open-ended, but the two shall become one. So in case there was any ambiguity, which I don't think there was, but in case there was, um, then by the end of that, the love and sacrifice, he's like, by the way, this is two people, the husband, you know, the man will leave his parents and become one with his wife. So it, it answers your question right there. I'm still what trying to understand. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Haiti. Maybe I'm well, not making my okay. point. I have, a, I have a scenario for you guys. I want to know how you would advise this couple. Um, let's say the woman has just completely lost her sex drive, which is not uncommon for women post-menopause or maybe she's sick or whatever it is. The thought of having sex is just hell for her. She, she, you know, she's prepared to do it because she loves her husband, but she hates every minute of it. It's, it's kind of traumatizing, right? Meanwhile, the husband is a sexual person and he feels tremendously sad and deprived that he's never going to have sex again. And even though he loves his wife, that also seems like a horrible future, right? So either one of them has to um, sort of suck up something that they really, really don't want to do. And it seems to me that that would put terrible strain on the marriage, right? So either someone has to suck it up or um, they might just decide to part ways, right? Now, what if instead the husband had some kind of sex worker where he went to occasionally just to fulfill that part of himself? And that might seem to me, that seems to be a solution that they might all want to live with more than the alternative. But what would you advise it from a, I assume from a Christian 
perspective, that's a no-no, right? Right. Are they Christians? Yeah, well, well, let's say they are, just well, for fun, because well, you're, you're talking. Yeah, I, I defer to you last step. Let me take this one. Uh, so, okay, first of all, I'd say, is that not every marriage ever? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. And then second of all, I'd say, before I answer, which I will answer because you it's not possible. I would love you to present that to to the guy's wife. Be like, hey, you know, you don't want to have sex, so what's the big deal? Let him well, go get a hooker. I mean, a, a sex no. worker. Wait, what, what? Can can I finish asking my question? She is. Okay, so were you were you saying he presented it and she's cool with that? Like she's like, okay, I don't want to have sex, so you go get a sex worker. I'm fine be. with that. Okay, well, but I would be curious if she. Oh no, who's getting interrupted? Wait, wait, wait! Who's getting interrupted? We just went on like a five-minute tangent My about God. poor Haiti getting interrupted. She's clarifying. Okay. She's clarifying. So I'm saying, you said she may be. I would be curious if she truly is. And then even if she says she is, does that does that cause some kind of funk in the relationship? Because maybe she wasn't really as okay as she said. And then the Christian answer, the alternative is, yeah, under the Christian paradigm, suck it up. For better or worse, till death do you part. Ooh. Adultery is the uh, – from the Christian paradigm – adultery is like about or abandonment but like adultery is like about the only reason you know for a divorce to be allowed under a christian paradigm so you know if it wait so if somebody it 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 is i mean there's abandonment and death but anyways so well death not divorce but so it oh my gosh let the lord have like like shut the mouths of the lions i was trying to be funny anyways so the point is um you're going to wait until I get my train of thought. You derailed me multiple times. Um, okay, so under the Christian paradigm, I would say if it's not adultery, if it's not like abandonment or something like that that the Bible does not allow for divorce for, then suck it up. This is your burden to bear. Deal with it. Who is okay, sucking I'm it done. up? The wife or the husband? Both of them. Have like, you? Well, not her. So like if wait, e- no. either or. So like if – right. So okay, whoever has to suck it up is the one sucking it up. Maybe they were either the wife has to put out and be like intensely unhappy about that, or the husband has to be celibate and be intensely unhappy about that, right? So if it's the wife's choice, she might think, Well, look, I you know, I would rather he got it somewhere else than me have to go through this ordeal because having sex when you don't want to is horrible. Horrible. So you just say suck it up. I mean, yeah, if the husband wants to suck it up, I guess the wife's going to be happy, right? But he isn't. He's going to be deeply unhappy. You ever been no, without just... sex for like years and years? It's probably pretty terrible. Hey, Nate. I don't, I don't, wait, hey, yeah, hang on. I, I don't know what else to say. So like they are married. So under the Christian paradigm, right? That's, you ask for a Christian answer. So this is, this is what you're coming from. You have to deal with it. There's a whole plethora of stuff that is awful and excruciating and you don't like. So either, you know, do something unbiblical and get a divorce. If you don't want to do that, then per the Christian paradigm, you just have to deal with it. So, yeah, if they want to negotiate something where the wife's like, oh, don't you realize how unpleasant it is to have sex when I don't want to? Okay, well, I committed. So, you know, I will I will bear this cross and, you know, like I will hook up with you, uh, you know, this time. And then the husband's like, well, I want to hook up like every night. So I will bear this cross and, you know, abstain. So maybe it's equally, you know, like a compromise is when no one's happy. They're both so maybe they, it's like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So maybe they are both miserable because of the vows they agreed to. So whatever the reason, they couldn't predict, they couldn't predict postmenopausal, whatever, not wanting to have sex. So that's a burden they chose to bear when they got married and did vows. So if they really want to be worthy of keeping a vow, 
then do that. Or if one of them is incredibly sacrificial, the wife's like, I will hate every minute of my life, but you know, you don't, I don't want you to abstain or go without. So here you go. Or if the husband's like, you know what, maybe I'll just become like a monk and, you know, love you in every way. And I'll like, you know, practice tantric stuff for the rest of my life and, and be incredibly sacrificial. So that's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter how you mix and match that combo. The fact is you find a way to deal with it. Uh, Mark, what were you saying, Mark? Sorry. Yes. Um, uh, the situation Haiti brings up is a real-world situation. We have a couple in our church that I've been uh, working through this with them. And let me say they're doing great because when you have the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, when you've received him as your Savior, you don't have to tackle these problems on your own. You have the help of the Lord and his Holy Spirit and guidance from the Bible, and it can help you through. So what, what they're doing is the, um, the man says, look, I love you, I love, the, I love the Lord, and I want to be totally sacrificial in this, but here's what I need and here's what I desire. And then the, the wife, you know, she had some uh, trauma in her youth that makes things harder for her. And, um, and she says, look, I love you, I love the Lord, it's hard for me, but I will, you know, do what I can when I can. And to tell you the truth, there's a lot more to marriage than just the physical. It's an important part. But what they found is when they love each other and they love the Lord, they're working together on it. So it's not like one person has to suck it up and the other gets their way. I mean, they're, they're both, you know, doing the best they can at their age and so forth. And they're, they're happy and they're serving the Lord. And, you know, does he wish he had more and does she wish she had less? Probably. But that's not the, the main thing of their marriage. Their main thing is living their life for eternity and doing things that count for the Lord. So that's it's a real world situation, though. I mean, I mean, earlier, like when I said, is that not true for everyone? I mean, maybe not to this incredible degree, but I mean, there is I mean, I think there is a lot of that. Again, maybe not to the, the super degree Hades example is, or the people in your church, but I mean, I think a lot of us feel this way. Like, I think it's rare that you find, you know, a people in a, in a marriage or whatever who have the exact, exact equal sex drive. And even if they do, who are in the mood at the exact same time. So there is going to be give and take, um, and, and there's going to be. I mean, so everyone's got to negotiate. It's not like there's like super special cases. I mean, the super special cases may be the extreme ones who never want to have sex and always want to have sex. But I mean, it's not something that is foreign to us. Doesn't, doesn't it bother back to the kind of what this conversation kind of originated with. Doesn't it bother any of the male members of the room who are Christians to be referred to as the bride of Christ? <laughs> no, it's collective for the church. I came back like just in time. He's stuck on that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if I, it, even as a Christian, I found it incredibly disturbing. I hated that nomenclature. I thought not. I mean, I don't. Well, I mean, I don't. Well, I mean, I don't love it, but I'm also not five. I mean, you know, the bride the of Christ. That? Is wait, wait, <laughs> wait. What? I will give you an. I will. I will give you an example. So sometimes when people think we've never know, heard of troll before, 
And they're like, hey, you know where it talks about the part in the Bible where it says, you know, two will be taken and two women, you know, two women will be harvesting oil in the field and two women will be grinding. See, God says lesbians are OK. Ah, ha, ha, like that. And everyone else like rolls what? their eyes. And they're like, bro, they're talking about like because you're talking about the bride of Christ because. OK, great. Because we're talking about the bride of Christ, which is a collective for the church. And if you're like, oh, the bride, that means a dude's got to wear a dress and Jesus wants to date you. Like, I mean, I get it. Ha ha for a joke. But I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, how do you have a serious conversation? So, I mean, that's what I mean by that. It's equally as juvenile and ridiculous. Um, I mean, the first time I heard it may have been kind of like, ha ha. And I don't love it. You know, like, oh, bride of Christ. But when you spend two seconds and you're like, oh, it's a collective of every single person, male, female, whatever. Um is represented by the church. We are all the bride of Christ. That's what I mean. Goodness, why is this day so contentious? Did you move him down? Yes. <laughs> and he will stay down. Leave him there. <laughs> what did he do? Bothered me when I have a cold. Wow. All right. <laughs> Christian, Christian rules question. What's worse, divorce or, you know stepping outside of marriage for some sex if you both agree what's worse okay if we're parsing out sin gravity divorce or stepping outside uh well first of all divorce has reasons so if it's a reason to get divorced then obviously not uh divorce would be less bad because there's times when divorce is actually okay um so so assuming it's not a time if it's just like oh i don't like this i'm gonna you know get a divorce and unbiblical for an unbiblical reason I personally believe, uh, you know, adultery would be bad because be worse if we're assigning gravity. All sin is sin. But the Bible even talks about and Paul says, look, even even people that like commit sexual sins like that's that's doing something that's sinning against your own body. Um, so he even he even tries to. There is some biblical reasoning why stepping out and getting some sex on the side would be worse than just like unbiblical divorce because you're committing sin against your own body. And it goes on to say who Christ paid a price for to redeem you. So. That would be my answer. Pastor Mark, do you have anything to say to that? I mean, I would, That's I mean, good all answer. sin to sin, but. Good answer. What, what's it mean to sin against your own body? I mean, you know, we can take AIDS research, for example, or communicable diseases or, you know, any STDs. And I would think, well, if you're, if you're like mushing stuff together with other people and there's an exchange of fluids, then, I mean, getting something inside your own body, like even just my, with two seconds thinking about it, I'm like, oh, I get it. I, I get how I, it could, that could be perceived as sinning against your own body. Like you're taking, you know, something inside yourself that's going to be negative and cause you harm um, spiritually and quite possibly physically. Um, my thing would be that adultery is far worse. Um, because the, you're, you know, you're taking something sacred and you're, and you're smashing it. Uh, and this is assuming that one person knows and the other doesn't, right? Like one person is doing and the other person is unaware and finds out later. Um, yeah, I would see that as a far more crushing thing. No, my example was with permission of the spouse. Oh, which is worse, divorce. divorce or an open but, marriage? Was well, that the answer yeah, remains. Divorce because, like, the guy just can't live without sex. I mean, he might be, like, 35 years old, right? It's a big ask. So that could be one option. The other option could be, you know, like I said, he gets them outside and the wife knows about it and she's okay with it because she doesn't want to get divorced. So um, back to your question. The my answer remains. 
the, the solution for me there would be that that both parties have work to do, right? So, so, oh boy, here we go. There's going to be all the clips. Um, I have to meander through this carefully. So both parties have obligations to each other, right? Both parties are fulfilling needs to each other. So we would have to go case by case and say, you know, has if this woman is saying no because she doesn't like it, and then he's suffering. We have like a like if each of them are going to rate it on a scale, like the like the man is like my need for a sex is a ten, and she's like my desire to not have a se- have sex is an eight. Then they're going to have to like some nights it might be a ten for her and a five for him, right? So. That's part of what marriage is, is negotiating those kinds of things. I don't believe if this is a Christian couple, right? If this is a not Christian couple, it's a different conversation. But if you're saying this is a Christian couple that's coming to me and Nate for advice, that's the very specific arena that I'm answering in, um, then they're they're both going to have to assess and, and navigate this, right? Like marriage has all sorts of things that are issues. Um, so it might be that like one both parties really hate mowing the lawn or both parties really hate cooking dinner. And so what, you know, each party has to navigate like, boy, on Tuesday night, I really didn't want to do it, but I did it. So then on Wednesday night, you have to do it. It's sort of like we navigate these conflicts when we commit our lives to another person all the time. And the idea that both parties are going to be eternally happy in all situations is just an unrealistic one. The solution is in there somewhere. It would depend on what the issue is with both of these people. Is it medical for her? Is it medical for him? Like, what's the scenario? But saying, oh, well, the viable, the most viable solution is to just step outside the marriage and do this thing that both, because if they're Christians, they both believe this belongs in the marriage, right? If they are saying that their their solution is to just forget that and go on out and, and solve this problem outside of their marriage, that's not going to be a healthier, viable solution. The better thing is to navigate it together and figure out what the who needs to give and when. And it's not going to be a, he needs to give all the time and she needs to give all the time. It's going to be like a, a thing that they manage case by case. And I mean, even if the wife gives permission, she's like, you have my blessing. Go, go have sex with whoever you want. Watch porn. I don't care. Go do everything. Then yeah, I mean, he's not responsible just to his wife. Like it's between him and God ultimately, um, eternally. So yeah, it's like, okay, you gave me your blessing. Great. Um, you probably need to pray about that. But no, even if you give me your blessing, I'm still not going to do that because my relationship with between myself and my creator is ultimately more important than this one. Exactly. And so there's a certain amount of self-control and and giving for both of them. But I want to correct real quick. I saw D. Noel on mic, so I want to hand it there. But um, Varia in the chat, you quoted me as saying, if it's not a Christian couple, then it's fine. I did not say that. I want to make no. that very clear. I said... If this is a Christian couple coming for advice, I'm going to give them an answer. If this is my atheist friend who's also in a witch coven asking me about it, then I'm not going to be very helpful because my beliefs on marriage are very, very, very different from theirs. That's my Yeah, I just wanted to add, Seth made a a very good point when it comes to the medical because for Uh, Is she cutting out for you guys? Yeah. Uh, D, you're cutting out pretty bad. Uh, we don't hear you at all, D. Uh, let us know if you get a better connection, D. Uh, we would love to hear from you, but yeah, that's that's not happening right now. While we wait for D to get her, so D, as soon as test, as soon as you have some service back, but 
Very, I'm going to respond to you again. That's not very Christian of you to say that you're supposed to spread the word of Christ. So I, this is this is good criticism. I said this earlier. If my atheist witch coven friends came to me and said that we're in an open marriage, I would advise them, like, you need to talk to somebody else because I'm not going to, I'm going to give you my opinion and you're not going to like it. My opinion is that this is what marriage is and you ought not do it. I love you. You're not a Christian. Go ask somebody who's going to give you the advice that might be more helpful to you, right? Um, however, if those same exact two people came to me and said, we're in an open marriage and we're in a witch coven and also we're interested in Christ, I would be much more interested in that conversation because you can't expect people who don't know Christ to like understand the, this level of nuance. So if, 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 if Zeleny came to me and said, you know, I have this belief about uh, polyamory and an open marriage, but also I want to talk about who Christ was and what the gospel is. I am much more interested in talking to him about what the gospel is than I am in correcting his, whatever views that he may have on marriage. One of those things is far more important than the other. Now, if Zeleny comes back two weeks later and says, I've been praying and, I, and I've, I, you know, I've come to know Christ and I'm a new Christian and now I want to talk about marriage. Now we're like, okay, you have this desire to know Christ. You have this desire to have a Christian worldview and to have this, you know, this be a part of your life and change your lifestyle. Then we start addressing other things. There's a hurdle you have to get past first. So I'm always going to have that caveat of like, I would never stand on a street corner and tell people that they should not be in open marriages because Christianity is the best way. I'm going to say, I believe that monogamy is the best way for these reasons, but there's a more important conversation to be had. So this is not spreading the word of Christ, spreading the gospel does not mean screaming at people outside of abortion clinics. It means spreading the gospel. And then when these tougher topics come up, we're standing on more solid ground to have the conversation. I agree with you, Steph. Thank you. You know, I've, I've had like this, this persistent cough since I was sick like three months ago. And now some like dirty little germy kid like sent my kids home with some other sickness. So I have this cough on top of like this other like sinus thing. And I'm just a grumpy person today. If you've had a persistent cough, you should probably see a doctor, though, because it might be. I did. Uh, and they're like, it's called a post-infection cough, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and uh, okay. they're like, this used to only last a couple of weeks. Now it can last up to six months. I'm like, oh. what? They're like, yeah, we've never seen this until recently. I'm like, wonderful. They're like, yeah, it usually goes away after three to six months. I'm like, seriously? I'm like, there's nothing you can do? They're like, no, it's uncomfortable, but you're fine. I'm like, they did x-rays and like, you know, everything. They're like, yeah. You're fine. Just go home and suffer. I'm like, what the heck? Well, I mean, you're a Christian, up. right? Go, go home and suffer is like your... <laughs> yeah. like my thing. I'm, I'm not go Catholic. Go pray. Go pray harder, Nate. You got to pray harder. Um, yeah, I, I could I, up, though. Look, everybody look at John Fire's PTR in the audience. Look at that little baby. That'll cheer everybody up. Look how well, sweet. Look at the little toes. Congratulations, John. Congrats. So tiny. Look at those new toes. <laughs> All right. Let's see. What else we got? We have lots of people in here. And I've got a meeting in five minutes, so I'm going to have to run then. Of course you do. I'm going to run too. I know. <laughs> Nate, I knew you'd like that picture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, that is great for today. Harlequin. Hey, what's up? Do you have anything for a final uh, question or topic? 
Don't put that pressure on me, Nate. Come on. <laughs> you just love that cough, you know? I'm just kidding. I'm sorry you're sick. That sucks that, like, you're getting a compounding cold from your kid. Oh, those little monsters. They're so gross. Kids are so gross, you guys. Oh, they are They are pretty germy. Little Petri dishes. Uh, Daily, are you speaking yet? You've had, like, two hours to get off that motorcycle. Nope, guess not. All right, Mark, anything to fit? Or D, you want to give it another shot? Or Mark, do you have I'm any words of wisdom? We heard that. Oh, okay. Well, no, I just wanted to agree with Steph. Um, going back to the um, the marriage, um, the sexless marriage, um, a lot of times if a woman is struggling with that, it could be emotional or it could just be a testosterone situation where you might need to just seek medical help but there's a lot of things that happen prior to a woman just being like I don't want to have sex so I think it's kind of like it's like low-hanging fruit when you make a scenario that short-sighted is what I want to say well we heard that uh Daniel are you still speaking I'm just going to invite everyone up here. What was your message about Sunday, Mark? Oh, hey, Jimmy. What's up, man? All right. We've got like five minutes for you guys to talk until I end this Fortnite game. Go to my profile and listen if you like, because I saved them under there. But um, we're working through Isaiah. And also through the book of Romans. And so we just did the next um, next scriptures in that series. Hey, honest. Hey, hey, Nate. Oh, what? Hey. what I'm sorry. Go ahead. There must be a lag here. Uh, D? What do you I want to say? My, I don't know if the five minutes is going to be able to give you enough time to answer this because we kind of we kind of went over it but i was at work so i couldn't you know respond but we were talking about the um um the trinity and how if you don't believe it then you're not i guess not a christian or not going to going to hell or something and um i think chris kind of answered it but when i asked him for the book chapter verse on it he gave me an answer that I didn't know, I didn't think was satisfactory to make that decision. Um, I don't know if we have the time to go over it. And I'm going to probably be in the matrix, so I guess I can just maybe bring it up the next time that I'm not driving across the country, maybe. Uh, yeah, there's there's not time to go over it. But um, in short, I, I think um, if I remember, gosh, I've coughed a lot since then. Um, it, it was basically... you. Oh, yeah, I thought we did cover it. It was like, well, because talk about the Holy Spirit, like leading and guiding people into um, truth and understanding, um, th taking that verse in the Bible and it and saying, OK, so if the Holy Spirit leads us into truth and understanding, we see the Trinity. Therefore, we're right. So that's where it goes. So it's, it's not going to be satisfying for them to say it's like when Muslims say, where does Jesus say he's God? And he says, I am who I am or, 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 before Abraham. I am. 
and uh, you know, people like in Revelation where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. They're like, how do you know that was Jesus? Um, and the whole revelation is about Jesus. So it's like that. Like he says he's God in every single way, even saying, I will be their God. Um, but because I guess he doesn't say it in perfect English like a thousand times, they don't accept it. So you're not going to find something that says, and this is the Trinity. You, you should believe this. But whenever you like read the Bible, you see the Trinity. You see the triune being of God all throughout the scriptures, like from the Genesis, the first page in the Bible to the baptism of Jesus in multiple gospels. Um, so that's the answer. But uh, honest, what were you saying? Oh, yeah. Um, um, my wife, Frances, she was telling me that um, I think you're a vegetarian. Is, is, did I get that right? Vegan. A vegan. Okay. Um, Extra bad. Yeah, we're pescatarians. Uh, so we've, we've not, you know, done done all that. So let me ask you this. It's not even close. Um, huh? Sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying it's not even close, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I didn't say it was close. Um, so I, I was just curious as to what uh, what your motivations were to, to, become, to become a vegan. To lower my cholesterol. So it's, it's strictly a health choice? Wait, are you serious? Yeah. And then as time went on, I, and also kind of like a minimalist thing, like I, I kind of like, you know, got into like minimalism, except, you know, like my toys and stuff like that, I go crazy and I'm a hypocrite, but like, generally speaking, like I, I like the minimal approach to, to just life. Like if I don't need it, why, why do it? Why have it? If we're talking about video games or electronics, shut up. Um, but, but as far <laughs> as, so after I like did that to lower my cholesterol, because I didn't want to take pills or anything like that, because I'm like, if I don't need it, I don't want it. And I'm like, well, I don't need pills if I don't eat things that have cholesterol in it. So then I'm like, okay, well, now, like, why, why mess with animals if we don't have to? And clearly, we don't have to. My wife reminds me mm. I'm very, very portly vegan. So, um, you know. Yeah, so, um, so that, yeah, I was wondering if you felt like there was a moral component to it, to it for you at all, because that was my motivation to do the pescatarian thing, right? So, um, and I just didn't know if that except, might be. A, a, except for those poor fish. That's right. I, I am. Look, and I will, I will, I will, I will willingly admit I'm a hypocrite. Um, I, I'm iron deficient already. I'm anemic, and my doctor wants me to, and I'm on iron pills because of it, right? Um, and I do eat spinach and kale and all that stuff. But, uh, but no, my, I, I was just curious about the motivations, right? Because the motivations, were, you know, uh, for it sounds like there's that it was a health-driven thing for you, and then you considered the moral component of it. Would that be fair? Yeah, and, and more, I mean, more, more moral, yeah, slash ethical, because, it, okay, so quick rundown, then I'm gonna have to run. Sure. Okay. Well, I appreciate so it, man. Thanks. I, I would say, yeah, it, start, well, it, it started with health, and then it branched to, like, kind of the minimalism, well, if I don't need it, why do it? I don't need it, so I won't do it. Um, and then it kind of, you know, like, the ethical stuff, and I, I started seeing, like, you know, it, it was around the time, like, there was a big cancerous tumor thing going around Facebook, and it was like someone like all these people were showing their images, like because it's generally understood that like local mom and pop, like, you know, boutique butcher shops have like the best, most pristine cuts of meat. And it was like uh, people were posting these things saying how that's not the case. And there was like this stuff circulating around social media so showing like, I'm so mad. Look what happened. I went to this butcher shop. It was supposed to be better. And um, I got home and here's what it is. It was like this like pork loin or something. And they got home and cut into it. And there's like this giant cancerous mass. And I'm like, Ugh! I'm like, that is freaking disgusting. 
And then the last thing I'll say is, um, um, as far as the ethical stuff, like I just hate that idea. Like I, I'm not gonna like probably chain myself to a tree anytime soon and protest anything, but I, I hate the idea like how like you know chicken farms are raised and like you know all these things like factory farming is just like crammed together and like shoved on top of each other. And they're Man, feeding so them God, and they're feeding them like God knows what chemicals, and we're Man, eating, so and they're like they're like you know filling them up with like antibiotics, and we're eating all that, which is probably why yeah. I'm sick now because I ate too much antibiotic animals in the past. Who knows? But anyway, so it's I'm, all kinds of things considered. That even even people who are like, yeah. oh, uh, I mean, even people who are like, no, I'm still going to eat meat. They're like, yeah, I know it's full of antibiotics, and they're eating God knows what, and it's disgusting. But I'm not going to give it up. Like, I mean, a lot of people on that side, like, even agree because we know our food's poison. Like, I mean, even our plants are poison. So, I mean, we can't get away from it. I just saw a thing about how they were exposing. Um, it wasn't Monsanto, but it was another, like, bioengineering company, how they're basically going to force, like, you know, start putting mRNA, like, stuff in plants. They're like, we take the plants. We take the leaves. We crush it out. We crush out all the water. Then we fill it with our nutrient-rich antibiotics or antigens. And then they, they let it grow on and develop. So, I mean, we're all probably going to die from plants or meat. It doesn't matter. But that's my story. I appreciate it, Happy man. Happy Tuesday. I, I, yeah, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Anyone have any quick response before I uh, fish, shut it down? Fish are people, too. <laughs> all right, everyone. Take care. See you guys later. Thanks, Nate.